You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. What happened? We had visitors. Visitors? What were they after? A disc. The elusive disc. Damn. Any idea who could be behind this? Ragnar. Ragnar? I thought he disappeared years ago. Yeah, well, he's reappeared. And guess what? He's performing a nightclub act. Yeah! I'm gonna poison your water supply for gold, for ransom, for jewels, for money. <laughs> Someone has stolen our dish. So what'll it be? How about a loop job? Fork over some ramp cave, bitch. We will tenderize your butt. What? The hell did I inherit? <clears throat> the name Stargrove. That secret agents weren't really ever supposed to care for anyone. It's gone way beyond that for me. What kind of design and drug? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Heather Drain. I am the Lord of the Wasteland. Also with us this week is Mr. Josh Stewart. Greetings, my little turd balls. We are kicking off a series of films made in the 1980s in style with Never Too Young to Die. Released in 1986, the film stars John Stamos as Lance Stargrove. If that's not a hero's name, I don't know what is. He's a gymnastic superstar with James Bond as a father and his own cue in the way of Cliff as his dorm mate. When Pear Stargrove is taken out by the villainous Velvet Von Ragnar, it's up to Lance to save his father and the world. Now, we're going to be getting into spoilers in this episode, including talking about the real identity of Carruthers. So if you haven't seen the film, you can track it down on VHS or wait until April 11th when it's getting a Blu-ray release from Shout Factory and listen to the rest of the discussion. We will still be here. Now, Heather, when was the first time you saw Never Too Young to Die and what did you think? The film first came up on my periphery about, um, oddly enough, about almost 10 years ago. And I say oddly because I don't know how I missed it as a kid in the 80s. Like, I, I, this is something I would have been completely all about as a kid. And um, But no, my husband actually was telling me about it because we're both 
fans of the band Kiss. We were talking about Gene Simmons' like acting career, and uh, you know, like Wanted, Dead or Alive, and Runaway, and um, and of course, Kiss meets the Phantom, and he uh, was like, "Well, did you ever see Never Tearing to Die?" And I'm like, "No," and he's like. He's like, honey, it's got John Stamos and Gene Simmons plays a hermaphrodite. And I'm like, why is this not in my life? So I, I've only seen it actually kind of semi-recently. And my first impressions of it was astonishment, entertainment. I mean, it's, it is batshit and, and just a lot of fun. It's ridiculous in the best, best use of the term. How about you, Josh? Actually, it's a movie that even before it was in my life was always a part of my life. I was a weird kid in the 90s who when, you know, grunge and all that stuff was, you know, sort of swinging high and you know on through the late 90s to the boy band era and all that stuff uh i was always listening to like aerosmith and kiss and all the old 80s uh, and 70s rock because uh, that was the kind of stuff my mom was into and she had always told me about this movie for the longest i could remember and eventually you know in the early 2000s or so when ebay started becoming like a really big thing she finally got a hold of it because it was a movie that of course was the kind of movie that got stolen from her back in the 80s and uh, so I'd say probably about 2000 or 2001, I finally managed to see this movie and I've never stopped watching it. I came to this one through Zach Carlson's Destroy All Movies book, uh, the uh, definitive guide to punks on film. I don't know why I had never seen this one either. I had seen, of course, Kiss Me, Savannah in the Park, Wanted Dead or Alive. I've seen Runaway. I don't know how many times, but I completely missed this. I don't know if it was just... The box art was unappealing at the video store. Maybe the video store didn't have this one. I mean, the box, just with John Stamos and Vanity, eh, whatever. Then I've seen other box art where you do have Gene Simmons in the back as Velvet Von Ragnar and wearing that kind of feathered headdress. And it's like, oh, okay, this probably would have gotten my attention. But the regular U.S. Video box, eh, the media home video or whatever it was. Charter, I believe. Charter, okay. Didn't really get onto my radar. And then I read about it in Destroy All Movies, and uh, Zach reprinted that entire opening monologue from Gene Simmons. Yeah, I had to see that movie, and it really did not disappoint. No, that's the thing about this film is somebody could tell you like a point list of all the crazy, colorful things in it. And you might even build it up in your head, but when you see it, it still just bl- will blow you away. You're just like, oh my god, I can't believe this exists. Yeah, for years and years, this has been the movie I've been unleashing on sort of the unsuspecting public. The the one movie that is so weird that I know nobody knows it, but is so uncommon that nobody's seen it. So, you know, in April, when it finally comes out on Blu-ray, it'll be a lot easier for me to finally share this with the world in a nice, decent-looking print. But uh, I just hope that it gets a decent uh, print run. The VHS transfer, uh, it's a little dark, a little bit muddy. I mean, thank God everybody's wearing a lot of prime colors in this. <laughs> because mm-hmm. Otherwise, you might not be able to make out some of the scenes. But, you know, Cliff wearing his, what was it, like bright green pants and yellow shirt. It's like, okay, I, I, I can see him in the frame. But there are other times where it's just like, wow, it's, it's, it's kind of dark in here. Like, I have an old VHS copy of it, and, you know, going straight to the source, watching a rip of it, no matter what, nothing ever really looks that great. I, I've had an old Laserdisc and a Betamax copy of it laying around because I could find them cheap, and I've never had a way to watch them. So I've always been curious if they looked any better, but I'll, I don't know if we'll ever know at this rate. I like how you just collect them even though you have no way to watch them. What, what's one movie to collect every version of? It's easier than Highlander 2. I wish that there was a soundtrack for this film. Oh, my <laughs> God, I know. 
watching it again last night, I was looking through the credits and realized that almost every song in that movie was original and written for the movie. Well, you can tell right off the bat when our, our main theme starts off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, the opening and closing theme are unbelievable. And I and, and for the longest time, I assumed those were just for it. But no, every single song throughout that soundtrack is original. And there's no reason there's not a soundtrack, except that, you know, nobody saw the movie back in the day. I can't imagine this playing theatrically, you know? Oh, God, I, I wish I could go back in time. It just feels like it was made for the home video market. It really does. It, it, it's kind of a movie that, especially listening to your interview that you'll play later with Gil Bettman, it feels like a movie that was at odds with itself, like creatively. Like on one hand, it was a serious spy movie, but there's so much camp underneath just trying to ooze through the cracks. And it, it's such a, a perfect mix of weirdness. Well, we start off with that opening with Velvet Von Ragnar addressing his slash her followers. And the followers themselves don't necessarily seem to kind of be in on the joke, but they just kind of go along with Ragnar. Is that your guys' impression? Like, they seem to be like, when he's like, we're going to poison the water supply, they're like, huh, what? And then he just keeps going. And then eventually they're like, okay, yeah, whatever you say, Velvet. My little turtle balls. My little scumbuckets. <laughs> them good. But good. I figured out how to access their computers through three-channel radioactive waste. So it goes from Diablo Canyon into their drinking water. <laughs> poison the water supply. I'm going to poison. How are we going to do this? With all the info we have crammed onto our little computer disk, our own little Ramke. But there's a slight glitch. Someone has stolen our disk. That kind of perfectly sets the tone. It, like in particular, when they show that shot of the crowd going, "Huh?" It, it's it it's almost exactly a shot from like a Lloyd Kaufman movie from the same time period. It, it's got that same tone, but it doesn't have all the crazy graphic violence and sex and stuff. It's almost like a like a trauma movie you can share with some of the family. Kind of the impression I got, especially when you later on have kind of more towards the end with you know Velvet and the followers in the daylight, and she's like throwing them pills or shim. I don't know what is the correct gender pronoun for a hermaphrodite who identifies as both man and woman. Pronouns are important because they indicate a degree of respect. Who doesn't want to be respected? I don't want to offend anybody particularly. I just don't. I've Never tearing to die is making me think on so many levels. <laughs> I know, I know. I should have probably contacted somebody in the LGBTQA. Oh man, there's one other letter out there someplace. But yeah, I should have should have talked to somebody in that community because. Uh, and then I don't even know if Velvet Von Ragnar really counts. I mean, especially you know, it's that whole whitewashing thing. You know, why didn't they get somebody who really was a hermaphrodite to play this character? But no, they went with Gene Simmons. Yeah, well, and they didn't even go for somebody remotely feminine. No, no, this is no Jay Davidson crying game scenario whatsoever. No, no, no. See, if they were going to pick a member of KISS, that would be like a more presentable female. It'd probably be Vinnie Vincent, maybe Paul Stanley, but you'd have to shave that chest down. Something fierce. Ooh, that man's got I would a rug. Pay to see that. You'd have to, ch- to shave that down like every two hours. Oh, God, he's werewolfing out again. Get the clippers. He would bring so much sass. 
he would bring so much sass. Like I, I actually getting a little like excited just thinking about Paul Stanley now as Velvet. <laughs> oh, I, I kind of wish we could get that just the exact same movie, but with Paul Stanley now, even now, Paul Stanley, make it now. The, the, the only thing they'd have to change is uh, she, he would have to refer to it as people, you know, be like, <laughs> oh, people, we're poison in the water supply because that's rock and roll. You know, it would be. <laughs> I'm talking about the water supply. And you have to, you have to have, you have to have Eric Carr behind him doing the little like drum right. thing. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, for each, like I'm talking about tequila, you know, like that. But uh, going back to the original Velvet. The demon himself, Mr. Gene Simmons, you know, you see like him, her throw it out the pills and they're all liquored up. So it's almost like maybe I'm probably putting way too much thought into this, but sort of like obviously kind of easy to control them through pills and alcohol. I bet Gene added that he's notoriously straight edge. I bet he was that was like his jab at Ace and Peter, maybe we go into Stargrove or do we go into the dad next? He yells, get me Stargrove. And then you hear the theme. (laughs) Oh, that theme. Okay, Stargrove, let's see that new routine. Come on. All right, more lift now. More lift. Good. Real tight. Are you feeling like breaking let's out? Let's some height, Stargrove. All right, try it again. Come on. More lift. Good. Feeling adventurous, then you must put your trust not in a stranger. Playing your own game. Do it your own way Keeping your own sound That you found going down Playing like you play Who knows what you'll find You may like it or not But all that you find, boy Is all that you got That theme is like, as soon as you hear, you know the movie, You're because already you're like, this movie's going to kick ass. I got Gene Simmons in drag, calling people scumbuckets. He's he's killing girls with the finger. This very phallic fingernail that he's got. I love how all the people are chanting, the finger, the finger. Like, that's like, oh shit. And then that theme song kicks in and you're like, oh yeah, this is, this is not your mama's action film from the 80s. Well, it's mine. <laughs> well, except for Josh. It's Josh's mother. My mother's action film from eighty was Firewalker with Chuck Norris. So Oh yeah. yeah. It happens. And the the followers I thought were really fascinating because it was obviously like sort of like these pseudo Mad Max, but with like a Sig Sig Sputnik kind of cross bend in there. I was totally reminded of the goats from Dragnet. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> or wasn't there a there was a uh, a group like that and I want to say that Bobcat might have led them but in one of the police academy films as well. There's somebody I want you to meet. I think it's a good scullion. You don't think Slacker, you ask. Uh, you uh, you got a name. What do they call you? Jughead. Jughead. My, my mother's name is Jughead. Oh, well, I've been thinking of changing it. Why? It's a good American name. Yeah, it was before he joined the Academy. Yeah. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing two. I think it's two or three. I think it's two. Or, yeah. And the Stargrove theme song to play off of a uh, a gymnastics montage. 
just amazing stuff here. I mean, we don't get gymnastics in films too much other than like maybe Jim Cotta. It's weird though, because you know, there's, it's this montage of all these people doing gymnastics, but all John Samos is doing is just flipping around on a trampoline the whole time. <laughs> well, when you have that kind of mullet, you know, you can, you can coast, you can it's coast. It's really aerodynamic. <laughs> <laughs> if you actually like slow it down frame by frame, you can see the mullet kind of like doing a little flip, like it flips <laughs> first and his body follows the, the, the movement of the mullet. <laughs> Are you saying the mullet's in charge? Absolutely. The mullet's always in charge. This is right around the time that we get our first questioning of his uh, masculinity, too, because gymnastics is not the most masculine thing. Definitely not as masculine as wrestling, at least according to these two meatheads that are down there uh, on the ground waiting for him, waiting to taunt him and keep him from going allegedly into the showers, I guess is where he's headed. So we're going to get that quite a bit. I mean, as I was rewatching this again last night, it was just like, I mean, of course, Velvet Von Ragnar, with that character, you're going to be begging to talk about gender politics and it seems like that is rife through this whole film, especially the way that we are questioning John Stamos's masculinity through so much of this movie. Why don't you try something a little more manly, Stargrove? Like wrestling. We can teach you. What was this? I think I'll do the wrestling you here. I notice, especially like as he starts finding himself more and more early spoiler alert, yeah, he's going to end up following his dad's footsteps as a super spy. But um, he's always like, I'm a whole man or I'm a real man. I'm an all man. And, you know, it's like, OK, you know, you're protesting a lot there, dude. <laughs> we get it. <laughs> I thought the wrestlers had a weird sort of homoerotic. Yeah, they were very sexually aggressive almost. Like, they were like, come on and join us, you big tough guy. But, you know, they're not gay because they don't kiss on the mouth. It only counts if you're kissing. Bromosexual. This is another milestone on the projection. (laughs) That's genius. (laughs) And speaking of genius, to cast George Lazenby as this very James Bond figure, you know, reprising his role from his one turn as James Bond, I thought was terrific. And he is immediately uh, uh, thwarted by Carruthers, this member of the what should be the good guys, but no, Carruthers is definitely a bad guy. And I really don't know if at any point we're not supposed to immediately know that that's Gene Simmons. Because as soon as you hear the voice, you're just like, oh, yeah, Gene Simmons. Yeah, nobody sounds like that. No. You can tell just by the huskiness in that voice, that's Gene Simmons all the way. I remember, like I said, I saw it for the first time with my mom because I had a weird childhood. And she, you know, we were watching the movie and it were, you know, five, ten minutes into the movie. And I go, Mom, is that Gene in a red beard? And she said, no, maybe. <laughs> it's, the, it's the worst possible hit. And, and they don't try to hide anything because, you know, literally the first scene of the movie with the character, he does something evil. But then they try to play it off the rest of the movie like nobody else knows. That that cracks me up because he is surrounded by all of these like officials and these super trained, you know, espionage agents. And nobody guesses until almost the end of the movie that, hey, that Carruthers guy, he's a little weird. I mean, because even his voice is velvet. And his face is velvet isn't really that much different. It's just velvet with less eyeliner and a red beard and a wig. Now, granted, the wig is better than Jean's wig that he wore during the Hot in the Shade tour, I believe, which was like a Raquel <laughs> Welch 
Lord, I was like, I'm, sir, you've got money. Get a good wig at least, okay? <laughs> or better yet, don't make Hot in the Shade. Not a good album. But, no, like, no. <laughs> but yeah, I, it was just, it kind of makes I'm like, oh my God, it's so clearly, it's so clearly Gene Simmons. But that's kind of part of the movie's charm is just this, you know, you, you, you suspend your disbelief, you put the d- disbelief in a box, and you bury that box out in the desert. I think, too, at some point, we're supposed to think that Donja, the vanity character, is working with him and and knows that he's evil, is also evil. Like, I think if you were to read the original screenplay, you might be like, oh, yeah, okay. So we don't know if she's really – is she – because, you know, she she says that Carruthers says this, and she's following what he says. So she's probably down with him. But there's just – no way. When you're watching the actual execution of the film, it's just like, oh yeah, no, she's she doesn't know that Carruthers is evil. She's a good guy, obviously. Yeah, everyone's just clueless, and they're all the worst secret agents of all time. Well, yeah, and Lazenby, he's in the movie for, what, five minutes before he gets killed? I mean, it's just... I do like the cross-cutting, though, between yeah, him it's... getting killed, <laughs> and then Lance falling off of his whatever he's doing with his uh, gymnastics, and that wonderful moment of like, oh, they're almost like psychically connected. Yeah, it's right up there with the uh, the christening and the Godfather. <laughs> Oh, I think that's the first time those two films have ever been compared, and I, frankly, I like it. This never happened to the other fellow. So yeah, we, we are introduced uh, very quickly to Donja Deering, uh, the vanity character who uh, he meets at the funeral, uh, but not before we meet Cliff, who's played by Peter Kwong. Cliff is his dorm mate, who's the... Uh, God, at this point, you would expected like nerdy Asian guys to always be played by the kid from Goonies, you know. But here we have an older guy who's playing the nerdy Asian kid, uh, who's making these inventions. So basically, Lance has his own cue that is working in his dorm room. So he's going to get all kinds of cool devices from Cliff as we go through the rest of the film, which I, I kind of appreciate. Now, the creativity of the devices was cool, and also just the the sort of bizarreness of Lance happens to have a roommate who is making basically props that lend themselves very well to espionage <laughs> and is helping him cheat on his tests. At one point, Lance takes his bike and it gets lost, and, and Cliff, Cliff just like water off a duck's back. He's like, "Oh, I got a new one. I used your credit card." Smiles, and it's like, "Whoa, that guy! He won the roommate lottery." I mean, I think if <laughs> you know, in college, you're just lucky to have a roommate who doesn't steal your stuff. That's something I've always wondered because I, I've never gotten a direct confirmation on whether or not Lance is supposed to be in college or at like a boarding school, high school, because. Like half the write-ups of the movie all refer to him as a high school student. There's a part near the beginning where he's talking to, I think, a teacher or something, and he talks about, you know, having to do something next period, which is more of a high school talk. And that makes all the things that Vanity does with him in the movie real uncomfortable. Oh, Lord. A little inappropriateness. Definitely. Stamos would have been 23 when he made this movie. He does not look like a high school student. No, he doesn't. But, I mean, this was the 80s. (laughs) They had us. (laughs) Believing that Caroline Monroe was a high school student at the beginning of uh, Slaughter High. So anything can happen. Early on, a character refers to Lance being under 21. 
I thought it seemed a little vague. I kind of assumed college because of the dormitory situation, but there are, I, I didn't even think about boarding schools, which would make sense with his dad mm-hmm. being who he is. Yeah, shipping him off and never really paying attention. Of course, he doesn't think that his dad loves him. You know, that he thinks that his dad is skipping this very important gymnastics uh, performance. But of course, it's because he's involved in this spy work. And yeah, I mean, we, we've seen this story so many times that the spy who doesn't love his son. So this is a, a typical example of that. And unfortunately, Lance has to suffer at the hands of international espionage and, uh, and not having his dad attend this very, very important gymnastics meet. Do you think Austin Powers and Goldmember was influenced by this movie in any way? Because all the absentee spy dad stuff is identical. It totally is. Oh. <laughs> and even having uh, the vanity character uh, kind of being played by Beyonce Knowles. Yeah, I can kind of see that. <laughs> oh, man. Actually, speaking of vanity, I, I don't know if anybody, if you guys noticed this, but I, I have to say when you first see her, you know, she's like off the distance at Lance's dad's funeral. She is wearing like this. Oh my god! Yeah. This sheer like she's. I mean, she. It's like it's like. I I know her and Prince were not together at this point, but I swear it's like Prince was in charge of the wardrobe, or something because mm. it totally looks like you know she she looks like a sexy penthouse mourner. Yeah, you can see her pretty much her entire bra through the top. Yeah, she but, she was dressing to impress at a funeral. Yeah, <laughs> it's. Which, but I thought that was fab because it's vanity, of course. I mean, she's gorgeous, and uh, you know, you're gonna, of course, you're gonna put her in a sheer dress, even if it's for a funeral. Why not? And I think she actually gives a decent performance in this one because comparing this to The Last Dragon, I mean, she was a little clunky in that one, but it seems like by this time she had improved uh, enough to be a, a competent actor. Let's say she had a certain likability to her, where even when she was sort of delivering the hammier dialogue it, it always came off as sort of genuine it, even even back you know through the last dragon and you know up through action jackson and the few other movies she did like i always kind of liked her even though i knew she wasn't 100 percent great let's just say that in the lottery between her and apollonia she won you think you scared me you didn't mm-hmm. oh. oh yeah <laughs> Oh, by by far, by far. No offense to Apollonia, but I always felt like Purple Rain would have been a lot better if Vanity had stayed on. I'm kind of glad I didn't have to hear Vanity sing Sex Shooter because I would have felt really bad for her. The rest <laughs> of that movie is about 97% great, but that song is the, the one part you can skip over every time. I like to think if Vanity had stayed, they would have had Vanity Six do uh, Nasty Girl, which is, a, which is an awesome song. That would have been is- way better. It's so funny. I just realized we're doing uh, Beverly Hills Cop in a couple weeks here, which features Nasty Girl in one of the greatest scenes of the movie. Oh, yeah. But yeah, no, I liked Vanity a lot. I, I love I love Vanity in general. She, you know, yeah, not the greatest actress, but she had a, you know, kind of like what you were speaking to, Josh. She just had a really great presence and charisma. I mean, yeah, she's the camera obviously loved her a lot, but she, you know, she had something else kind of going on, too. You just, you know, you instantly are just kind of drawn to her so in a, in a bizarre world she's in purple rain well and i like that she's very kick-ass in this movie there's a, a scene that follows shortly where she's out at uh, stargrove's father's house uh where apparently I, I imagine that she and stargrove were father stargrove were living together out here and there are a few of uh velvet von ragnar's uh, baddies that come and they're looking for this disc there's this the the uh macguffin of the entire film is this disc that is 
uh, going to help Velvet uh, poison the water supply. And the uh, these baddies come out, and the one guy, Ed Brock, who plays the, the character Pyramid, I mean, this guy, you want to talk about masculinity. He is just the paragon of masculinity. This just incredible muscular guy. And I was amazed to see that he wasn't in anything else. I don't know why he wasn't, because he seems like he was kind of built for 80s action films. Yeah, he was just the ultimate beefcake of beefcakes. And for, for one role, he probably leaves one of the more lasting impressions. And, you know, you've never seen him in anything else. I, I looked up other... Like you were talking about how, you know, the original video art, you know, didn't do anything. If you look at some of the overseas uh, marketing for the movie, Pyramid's the character that takes up half the page on some of the posters. Hell yes. And he should. I mean, he he reminds me of a character that might have just like uh, or an actor that might have just taken over like the entire like Filipino uh, acting community. You know, it just seems like he should have been somebody like uh, that, that like Eddie Romero or somebody would have used a hundred percent of the time. He just seemed like such a an action star waiting to happen. Oh my gosh. I can't believe he only, I didn't know that. I'm kind of shocked because man, he's like one big, amazing, angry muscle of a human. I mean, he, God, you know, the barbarian brothers had a, a, a longer career than this man. That's so weird. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. No, he's good. Well, at least, at least he got to make his mark and never too young to die. I mean, how many people can say they were in this film and had their face, you know, shoved in a pile of uh, horse manure by vanity? That's awesome. Well, and of course, he does have one of the best lines, too, of Fork over some Ram bitch. We would tenderize your butt. I like that he kept it PG for her. That one actually gave me pause because I'm like, so you'll call her bitch, but you're not going to say ass. That's the line that's going to be drawn here. You could call her a bitch, but it's but. He is a gentleman after all. Shortly thereafter, after he she kind of dispatches these guys, then Stargrove, uh, the son, comes over to the farm, and they're talking and doing all their thing and kind of, you know, flirting, fighting. He thinks that she was, you know, boffing his old man, and she says, no, no, it was a much better relationship than that. And then all of a sudden we get this Star Trek sound effect that's going off. You know, the red alert is suddenly going off. And I'm like, well, where was that when those other baddies were showing up? They they really should have had this in effect earlier uh, before all the guys came up to the farm. But Or maybe you can just only hear it in the house and the barn isn't wired for sound the same way. I'm not sure. That's I didn't even think about that, Mike. That's a that's that's this film is so crazy there's so many things i just kind of accepted I'm yeah like, there's so many lapses in in any kind of everyday logic not just by its own rules but by most rules <laughs> a lot of things don't make sense but you just have to accept it just just go with it <laughs> like you have to accept that when Carruthers shows up we are still supposed to believe he's Carruthers and not velvet von ragnar and then he's got that weird line when he's in there and, you know, like, oh, you still had the Ram disc, all this kind of stuff. And That barn looks like it was hit by lightning. What happened? We had visitors. Visitors? What were they after? A disc. Elusive disc. Damn. Thimble, thimble, who's got the thimble? I've heard button, button, who's got the button. I've never heard thimble, thimble. But And then it just it seems like such a non sequitur. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? I'd like to imagine that Gene Simmons did a lot of improvisational work on this. And something in the back of his head told me, I'm pretty sure the phrase is, who's got the thimble? 
Button, button, who's got the button? I actually would make a small bet that because there's some lines where my favorite one of my favorite velvet lines is towards the end, you know, where the climactic battle uh, between her and her, him and Lance, where she <laughs> actually says to John Stamos, haven't you ever read any spy novels? Like, I don't know why that felt like a Simmons. I'm like this. I think Gene did that. And, and if he did, then bless him because it's it, it's hilarious. Pretty much right around here is when Stargrove uh, starts to embrace this uh, spy lifestyle because he's, he gets a, a great new gimmick from Cliff. He gives him this chewing gum that is also a listening device. I'm not sure how Cliff came up with that one, but that is a fantastic little gimmick that he gives him. And, you know, the best part about that is all that is leading up to one of uh, the best sequences in the film for me is the nightclub, the incinerator. Oh God, I know. It's so awesome. I love that the waitress in the club gets more lines than Robert England does. But <laughs> of course, Robert England is Robert England. It's like, and special appearance by Robert England. But this woman, she, uh, you know, chats up uh, Lance pretty well. Uh, I, I actually looked at her filmography and she had uh, one role as well. And it was as waitress, Ivar Morellis uh, as waitress. Oh, she, I was living for that character. She, yes. Oh my God. And I'm 99% sure that's a, that's a drag queen. Uh, I thought so too. Yeah. And uh, right down to just the fab, uh, she was fabulous. I wanted more of her. I'm like, can we just, can we have her become like this, like, you know, like this third wheel that helps them fight <laughs> velvet. And, and she keeps, you know, she was, oh, I loved her. She was fantastic. And I don't know how she was, the way she was serving drinks with those nails. Like she had like, these super, I was impressed. I, where where are you, Ivar Morello? Morellis? Yeah, you... that's what it looked like. Or Mirless, but it, there's only one S. Oh yeah, that's, that's Morellis. Yeah. Where are you, Ivar? This is this is anybody that listens to this. If you if you know, let us know because I'm curious. Yeah, it should have been like Slacker, where you follow the character that you want, kind of want to follow. So just like she comes in, and then you follow her home, and then the movie becomes <laughs> about her for about 20 minutes. Yeah, we have so many good alternate versions of this movie already. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you take just that character, it seems like that waitress character has a better idea of what movie. She's in than John Stamos does completely embraces the campiness of it. I mean, it actually kind of worked for him in this, but it's like he seemed like such a seemed almost so milk toast in comparison to everybody else around him because vanity's you know vanity's vanity, and you got Gene as Velvet, and you've got this waitress, and you got Muscle Angry Muscle Man. Stamos does it's like it's like he like jumped out of a Sears catalog or something in the middle of all this color, you know. Yeah, and his outfits are very 1986. I mean, it really takes you back looking at some of these get-ups that he has on. I'm like, wow, this was really during the height of Miami Vice, wasn't it? But yeah, Gene Simmons as Velvet Von Ragnar during this part where he gives his performance. Oh, man. I mean, this feels like it would have been right out of a Kiss concert, other than the headdress that he's wearing. But like the whole thing where it's like, going against the bass and then doing the whole yeah
takes a man like me to be a woman like me. Guess what I am? Do you believe what you see? Yeah! I know. As soon as it does the yeah, I'm like, okay, you just this. Are we doing Firehouse now? Are you about to go into <laughs> like, ooh, yeah, you know, like that, like that. <laughs> I was thinking almost human for some reason. Oh. I don't know why. I was stuck in the Love Gun era myself. Oh, Love Gun's a great album. That well, and that in like the whole engagement with the cute blonde, where that was totally like that wasn't Velvet. That was Gene Sleazen on this girl. And uh, I don't know if you if you guys caught it because it's kind of like from a distance, but it looks like like it totally bends down is doing like the demon tongue <laughs> at her, which he which he pulls out uh, frequently. There's a lot of like kiss references in this film between the tongue and i noticed like when velvet laughs maniacally like gene will do this thing where his eyes like the pupils roll up right and, and that's something he always like tends to do in those concerts especially during the makeup era so i just don't think he knows how to turn that off <laughs> like he's doing it in the shower he's been doing it for far too long he just right. wakes up and starts practicing for the day I like to think Shannon tweets like waking up and she can hear Gene in the shower and he's like, yeah! <laughs> I could just imagine her rolling over in the middle of the night and waking up and his tongue's just hanging out there and his eyes are in the back of his head. He just doesn't sleep now. Oh, well, I'm not going to be getting any sleep now. <laughs> Speaking of which, oh my God, that should be in the mouth of madness. That is... I love the sexually charged scene afterwards when Stamos goes up to the dressing room and is asking for an autograph. And that amazing moment where Velvet tries to disarm Stargrove and where he's got his back and she just goes, Stargrove! Do what now? Did you say something? (laughs) (laughs) And of course, he he totally gives it away because he says, is that name supposed to mean anything? (laughs) I would think, is that a brand of apples? I'm not sure what you're saying. He he's kind of the worst spy in a, <laughs> a lot of ways, which which actually I kind of dug because you know it, it it made more sense to have him be kind of bumbling. He's not totally bumbling, but like him putting the gum in the what is it? it looks like a like a fake horse type yeah. statue head in the nostril, and you can clearly see it. It's <laughs> like the horse has a giant pink booger. As amazing as the whole sequence is, you realize it basically just wastes about 15 minutes of screen time. (laughs) All he does is meet the villain and then immediately get foiled by them and then gets his bike stolen and, you know, blown up. I didn't know what was funnier. Velvet immediately catching on and flushing the gum down the toilet and laughing maniacally yet again. Or when that dude is hassling plants and when he gets on the bike and he starts having to just splutter. Like what luck that that asshole came out of nowhere. Hey kid, give me your bike. It's my bike now. Fuck you. And then boom. Oh my God. That like even just replaying it in my head right now, it's I almost have tears. That was so unexpected <laughs> and just so ridiculous. It's so great. Lance, I think you like to think his dad was like his garden angel and it's like, okay, man, my kid's gonna get killed. I better have this big drunk hobo. And <laughs> 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 make sure his roommate is a you know technical expert better than the CIA. <laughs> 
<laughs> like he lucks out in every moment of this movie. Like he fails upwards through the conclusion. Oh, I know. Cause I kept, I kept thinking if this was real, I mean, the Dar, Dar, the Darwin factor would have kicked in at the 20 minute mark. I don't know. <laughs> it would be a very short film. No, Donja is such a better spy than oh, he would easy. ever hope to be. <laughs> I do have one other question though. How come this highly wanted terrorist, you'd imagine probably the number one terrorist in America, you know, based on the reputation, is just performing at a nightclub in front of everybody. They have no proof. Ah, I, I just, it's its so weird. They, they just seem like they, you know, like it's hot intel that Ragnar is performing at this club, but like, oh, I don't know. It's its just so weird. Oh, uh, well, and, and the fact that like the club, I was so fascinated by this, this universe of the club because it, it, you know, they have it set up like it's a real rough and tumble kind of punk biker bar like real like yeah nobody nobody harasses vanity or john samos in the bar even though they clearly stand out as being different like he doesn't get harassed till you know drunk hobo guy tries to take his motorcycle but also they're apparently very like open-minded towards drag and towards people who are intersex or you know i don't know if that's the right term but you know hermaphrodite like that they have a hermaphrodite as their leader and they're totally down with it. I mean, which is cool, but it's like, it's like, whoa, you wouldn't think that kind of crowd would be like so forward thinking. <laughs> yeah. It's a pretty cool crowd. If you leave the water supply out of it. Well, the attempted rape, you know, <laughs> Oh, there's that. Oh my God. That nightclub scene could have been like half the movie for me. It, it was just, it was, it was great. Well, let's talk about John Stamos getting horse whipped here. Um... <laughs> let's yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> what is going on with that? I mean, this is the moment, you know, talk about those those two wrestlers from earlier with their kind of sexual advances. It seems like there's kind of a little bit of sexual overtones to this scene when uh, Lance gets caught by these two dune bike uh, punks and they're whipping his they're whipping his ass, aren't they? Basically, is this is this the the one after they they kidnap Donja and he and then he wakes up back in the house? We totally went over that bit where there's that, again, things that I'm pretty sure got stolen by bigger movies that, you know, truck chase is almost identical to a truck chase in the first Fast and the Furious movie. I was totally reminded of uh, one of the uh, Smoking the Bandit films. There's uh, that too. when her car goes underneath the truck, I was just like, oh, didn't the Bandit do that under Jerry Reed's truck at one point? That's true, man. I haven't seen those movies in forever. <laughs> Personally, I think the Fast and the Furious movies are just like a, a lesser version of the Smokey and the Bandit films. I mean, what isn't? It's just the weirdest setup to anything where, you know, they have this big action sequence. She kills the dick out of everybody. And then they knock her out and kidnap her and they knock him out. And then he wakes up at home. And as soon as he wakes up at home, they just start beating the hell out of him to try to figure out whatever information they want. <laughs> it's a lot of backwards logic on these these super villains here. Do they think that the disc is at the house or something? I mean, they're they're all about that disc, but the Ram it. Who named it? The, I I just imagine this was some like an old guy working on the script, going, "Hmm, Ram. I've heard that's part of a computer before. Let's add a letter to it. It's the Ram K. Now it's important." It's another thing of like the logic or the weird logic here, because why would why would Velvet have Lance, the son that is connected to this disc? Not not at her lair or her his lair, but at his home with only two goons and two really like she didn't even pick like the best goons. Like she didn't pick muscle dude. We get these two like dumbasses that he ends up kicking their ass because I love it when he gets that a- awakening of like, 
Oh, you know, like he sees he like that picture. <laughs> yeah, he gets the music. He's that picture of him and his dad and his dad's like sort of um gold piece, you know, that's sort of I guess like his symbol. Yeah, I, I just kept calling it the medallion. The, mm-hmm. Yeah, a medallion. And then he ends up whooping their ass and um it, it just he throws them out he throws yeah, them he, both out of the window. Yeah, he gymnastics them out the window. <laughs> Yeah, it's such a Jim Cotta move. I was just so happy about that. But yeah, he he really comes to, you know, it's it's like that moment when Hulk Hogan has just been beat down so much and then finally just can't take it anymore and jumps up and just starts beating it, beating both of these guys up. It's just Hulkamania running wild. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, this movie should have had Hulk Hogan if we're talking oh, alternate man. versions. Hulkster versus Pyramid. That's a match for the ages. Ooh. Oh my yeah. god. Yes. Yes. And maybe a little cameo from the Ultimate Warrior. I'm just saying. <laughs> it it'd be kinda cool. But uh I don't see why not. <laughs> I thought the car chase was really, you know, especially with her sliding underneath that semi. I thought that was really well executed. No, I thought that was really well done and I I really enjoyed seeing the uh, motorcycles going under the back tires of the semi. Mm-hmm. That was pretty nice. Oh, yeah, even god. watching that again last night. Uh, I, I'd shown the movie to my wife a few years ago because that was like an initiation ritual. And I guess, you know, over time you forget about it. But as soon as they go out, the, the wheels go over that biker. She just went, oh, I love that the trucker just kept on driving like he did. You... <laughs> like, well, you know, it's too late for him now. <laughs> just a hazard of the road. Yeah, I got to get this course to West Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that's a th- the dangers of listening to Red Sovine and and drinking uh, corn liquor uh, while behind the wheel. It's uh, shit's gonna happen. I had a little giddy up going, him, you know. <laughs> also, with the medallion, I I, I just again, I, I, they almost should have had George Lazenby as some sort of angel because <laughs> just by coincidence, Lance tries to put the the medallion on his necklace, drops it, and it lands exactly to a glowing red panel and he knows that there's a little he he realized oh there's a slot and he puts the medallion in like he immediately put those two together yeah there's no way he achieved any of the stuff in the movie on his own and uh, he's just a big cheater poor lance and in, in any other movie that would have thought more about this once he got into the secret lair there would have been a video from his father you know well son if you're watching this i guess i'm dead and that means you're in charge but instead he just kind of has to figure it all out for himself it's like why are these pictures of jfk and lbj on the wall i don't get this stuff at all <laughs> purple heart dad i didn't know your heart was purple <laughs> Well, I love that the secret layer is under the bed. I mean, we're talking about sexuality in this film so much, and it's just like, oh, yeah, here you go, son. Here's the secret layer. This right is where it all happens. Bed. Yes. <laughs> I, I, lo- I love that the layer had like a, a decanter of scotch. I don't know why I kept hoping I was going to see like a pile of like porn in there, but like the classy stuff, you know, his dad's. Oh, yeah. He's, got, he's a man the, of money. The, little, the eight millimeters lying around there <laughs> high society <laughs> or we i think he would be a wee man i don't think he would mm. be there would be no beaver or jugs in that <laughs> lair it's gonna be like we or you know what is that the calendar like the peretti calendar yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be cl- you know, classy smut <laughs> or it'd be tom of finland and it's like what dad <laughs> <laughs> Tom of Finland. That would kind of keep in line with the, the the rest of the film. No wonder you and Donja weren't doing anything. <laughs> we didn't discuss the fact that I, I, I'm sure it wasn't within minutes, but it felt like within minutes of 
Lance meeting Donja, he basically went, oh, hey, you're the slut that banged my dad, didn't you? Right. Like, he took no time at all to just assume that. <laughs> and, and and yet she's still attracted to him. It's like, you're vanity, girl. You could, <laughs> you, you have the pick of the litter in this universe, okay? <laughs> but, no, the... No, I just you just like inspired me though, because you ma- imagine if his dad had Tom of Finland, and we find out that his dad and Velvet had been <laughs> ex lovers, and that's part of the reason. You know, it's not just the disc; it's personal. Like he 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 spurned her, and so she's she's in it to win it. And now she wants to seduce Lance. Yeah, to prove. Oh yeah. yeah, that's why he keeps getting whipped. But really, it is such a struggle for Lance to prove his masculinity because we've got that seduction scene that happens, which is just one of the strangest seduction scenes where it's vanity taking off her top and getting in the hot tub and getting out in sunbathing and just doing all this. And the whole time, John Stamos is just like, oh, 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 what am I going to do? You just keep cutting back to him. Oh, I'm going to go in the house and oh, I'll come back out. He grabs two different apples. He eats a whole apple and then goes back and gets another one. <laughs> um, that scene, I kept thinking, is, is, is it going to keep going? Like I kept thinking, it, it, this is this is like this is ridiculous, like, and yeah, it'd keep going, and and it it was so bizarre because it's like he he looks like the the handsome but kind of hapless like protagonist of an '80s music video, and she looks like she's filming like her Playboy centerfold video right down to like the garden. I love the garden house. Why is she working this hard for his ass? Like <laughs> I I just I that was a lot of disbelief. I had to suspend for that one because I'm like she's. Come on, she's vanity. <laughs> I mean, Stamos is cute, but she could do better than him being like, oh, lady, I don't know, you know, like, is he a virgin? I just, I'm like, how many guys that are heterosexual would be shacked up with, with Donja, which does rhyme with Ganja, Mike. I noticed that note in your script. <laughs> <laughs> Every time they said Donja, I was just like, what? What? <laughs> Who? Ganja? What? They've got Ganja. What? Oh, okay. Let's go visit him. Then. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, "Oh, it's a girl." Oh. <laughs> oh, okay. Do you mean Vanity? Why'd you just call her Vanity? Come on. <laughs> she should have been called Vanity in every movie she was. In. <laughs> it's like how Tony dances usually. A Tony. I was just gonna say that. <laughs> the seduction scene, and I love it when they finally embrace, and you get like this weird like editing where they like repeat like yeah, quick cut. It's almost like a music the video same cut over and over again they, they definitely just wanted to, to put a music video in the middle of the movie can we can we speak of the uh wonderful saxophone mm. night eyes three or bedroom eyes three <laughs> type soundtrack we got going on for their for their, their very erotic <laughs> quotation marks i don't it wasn't erotic at all but it was fascinating if that makes it any was sense. 80s erotic. <laughs> <laughs> so many just amazing songs in this. I mean, as we talked about at the beginning, the, it's just a, an absolute crime. There is no soundtrack to this because it is just every song is just better than the last one. Though we do keep going back to the Stargrove theme. Yeah, and the, and the Stargrove theme itself is probably one of the top, you know, probably top four or five 80s action movie themes that sings about a danger zone, I'd say. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, when you have a theme that good, you got to loop it. You got to bring it back into the fold every so often in a film. Well, in, in most of the rest of the movie, you just get the like the synthesized version of it because you know what that music means from the beginning of the movie. It's okay. just little you just hear that. little snippets here. And- <laughs> <laughs> Though you do get love theme from Star Wars during that lovemaking scene. Where you got the yeah the saxophone? Burr, burr. Oh my god, that saxophone! I was like, "Are you shitting me?" I couldn't. <laughs> I'm like, "Oh my god, they got a saxophone, a saxophone piece for the sexy." Brilliant. That's. I think there was like something written. There was some kind of unspoken code in the '80s where it's like, "Okay, you got nudity? Yes. We got sex scene? Yes. Saxophone music? Yes." And and it's uh, you know it mullet. Absolutely. Make it style, though. None of that Billy Ray Cyrus shit here. We want a Richard Marks mullet, and we want it now. Oh, I think my favorite take on that is, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the uh, the Gary Busey movie Bulletproof, but there's a scene in that movie where he has his own sexy flashback, Busey does, and he's basically just sitting on the beach playing a saxophone as it goes to the sexy flashback. I need to see this immediately. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> oh, my God. Also, I think somebody needs to start a podcast called Gary Busey's Sexy Flashback. Somewhere in this movie, we're introduced to John Anderson as Arliss, who is apparently Stargrove, Stargrove Sr.'s uh, boss, and who seems to be okay with Lance and Cliff uh, kind of tagging along and being <laughs> super spies now. Well, you know, like when, uh, you know, when a member of the family dies and you have to pay off all their medical bills? <laughs> he took on all of his dad's work when he died. You know, the best part is is we're building up to another wonderful key moment of velvet fantasticness, which is uh, the reveal. Oh, the reveal. Oh. And, uh, and we, oh, man, I feel like we've missed so much, but the movie's just so all over the place. Like, I know Robert England showed up in there somewhere, and I still don't know what the hell he was doing. <laughs> I'm not even sure exactly what, because what does he do? Making the the, the, it's not a bomb that's he just seems like he's his computer nerd and he when you see him the first time he's dressed like like if you've ever seen the musical version of reefer madness he's dressed like ralph he, he's like a almost 40 year old man wearing like a letterman <laughs> it's, it, it, they never explain that they never try to and he never wears it again he's wearing like a, a leather jacket later in the movie but he's just there for a second had they made it 10 years later, it would have been Ted Raimi in that role. Oh, man. Stop making me wish for all these different versions of this. <laughs> I know. Oh, goodness. I know. The, the appearance of Robert England was so random to me because, like, halfway through the movie, I'm like, oh, shit, it's Robert England. <laughs> okay, cool. Because this was after Nightmare on Elm Street and V. So he's, you know, a known kind of commodity at that point. And, um, I, I get a feeling he got locked into a contract. About five minutes before he became Robert England, and then they said, "Well, we can use that for a minute or two. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you're onto something though I do love uh I'm trying to think velvet has a line you know when you're when she's first talking to him, and she's like, "Oh, look at that beautiful shade of purple, like on this like map of like the <laughs> water system <laughs> it was that seems so Gene Simmons to me, just like let's throw in this random thing." Oh my god! It, it always cracks because it's just like the the flipping on a dime from you know maniacal villain to like you know oh you know oh kitty cat look at that oh that's yeah, oh but delicious. I like pretty colors yeah 
I'm surprised she didn't get the vapors. That's all that was, you know. <laughs> I love Robert England for the record, but uh, but yeah. So okay, so you're right. So they um, we kind of going. We are going all over the place, but the reveal, the reveal <laughs> so, is so good. It's there's so no good. reason for it. It's the most casual reveal of all time. <laughs> just <laughs> off the beard. It's like, and I love it. Just yeah. They're just up. what are they sitting in a helicopter all together? Yeah, well, it's, it's a, a, a a weird thing that Carruthers is driving the helicopter, flying the helicopter, and they're like, Carruthers, and then he rips off the beard. Ragnar! Yeah, just, just that delivery of him going, I'm Ragnar! <laughs> and then he starts cackling, and he lets his hair out, when he takes off the sunglasses, and that's the giveaway, because he's still got the makeup on. <laughs> That's like a moment you have to rewind. You're like, oh, oh yes, yes, this is so great. It's just, it's just amazing, and I just, I, I love that they're like, oh, <laughs> like now you realize that Carruthers. So shocked. Oh my, oh no. <laughs> it's it's Velvet. It's Ragnar. It, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm my mind may be adding this because I want it there. While like Velvet's doing the maniacal laughing, does Jean? make a kiss type noise in that too is like you know like doesn't is there like a, a demon noise in there or am i just wanting it to be there because it just make make it even better brothers You know, I know there's one somewhere in the movie, and I can't for the life of me remember if it's at that point. And people could correct us and call it call it call Mike and I clap trappers. <laughs> if nothing else, it'll it'll uh, invite more people to watch the movie and find out for themselves. Absolutely, you're welcome, Shout Factory. We're <laughs> we're, we're driving sales, damn it. Just that weird shot of Gene Simmons just like kind of tossing his hair and trying to get his hair out more and stuff. <laughs> what the <laughs> hell is going on? And it, and it seems like it's almost shot outside of the helicopter because it seems like it's from outside the front seat. I'm just like, what? what is going on here? It's weird to have him reveal from the back, you know, and they like, <laughs> like have to turn around to do the reveal. And then they're just, ah, they're freaking out. <laughs> and he ends up taking them to one of apparently many secret layers that he has. And, and Stamos, they're, they're complaining about his, his army of toughs. And, and Stamos says, they're victims of a tough society. <laughs> what the hell? Those trickle down economics really got them. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thanks, Reagan. <laughs> thanks a lot, Ronald Reagan. Yeah, that's that's a great line. And then it ends up again. The questioning of masculinity is what helps Lance escape because then he, he starts making fun of Pyramid and just saying that, "Oh yeah, who's on top when you guys get together?" Hey, eh? <laughs> basically gay bashing Pyramid, and that's what sets him off to start fighting Lance. And uh, Lance does some more awesome Jim Kata. Now, please correct me if I'm wrong here, but at one point he like falls back or or flips back. 
And then it just seems like he magically gets a machine gun in his hands. Did I see that right? Or or what? was there a bad splice in the film? What the hell happened? Josh, you've seen this movie way more than I have. I've only seen, seen it, it way more than anyone has. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, is it like Lance does a flip and while he's like, his feet are there flipping, he doesn't he kick a machine gun out of somebody's hands? You know, in a better, it? in a better made movie, we probably would have been able to tell. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This is some truth here. <laughs> yeah. This, and the weirdness of like, Pyramid is the right-hand man of a hermaphrodite who is very overtly sexual, but yet is is still insecure about his masculinity to be baited. I would think if you're like, if your boss is a hermaphrodite, you'd just be like, yeah, you think I'm gay? That's fine. (laughs) Whatever. Yeah, if you're really that comfortable with yourself, it's no big deal. Yeah, maybe we didn't kiss. So, you know, (laughs) I'm I'm straight, whatever. (laughs) Oh, God, if he French kissed Velvet, he'd choke. We must touch upon this. The use of the tongue that keeps reoccurring. Like, Velvet at one point goes to to French vanity against her will. It's very kind of rapey in a way. (laughs) But that tongue, it's like like a sea snail, like coming out of its conch or something. It's like, and I'm just like, Lord, no, put it back. I mean, I was, I actually flinched. I was like, oh, Jesus, this is too much. This is too much tongue and too much. And think about it. When this gets restored... We're gonna get that in HD, which is both <laughs> glorious, but also I'm I'm definitely looking away. Like I'll have to kind of do like, oof, don't stare directly at the tongue. You know, you think I'd be used to it because I love Kiss and I've watched so many Kiss concerts and videos, but the the tongue is used in this to such a weapon degree. Yeah, usually the tongue stands alone. <laughs> I I can just imagine going back to the theory of Gene Simmons improvising. I could hear him. I you know I can imagine him talking to the director before the scene, going, "Do you think I should use the tongue in this scene?" And then them telling him, "No, Gene, you don't need to do that." And then he goes, "I think I'm going to use the tongue in this scene." <laughs> no doubt. I I love that. Like they're able to take on because it's like a huge group and and by the way did, were you guys reminded slightly of mortville from desperate living oh wow that's a dead-on comparison actually <laughs> i wouldn't have even thought about that but that's that's pretty good <laughs> i actually have it in my notes as post-punk mortville that's li- that's literally what i wrote down <laughs> I but we never saw what happened after the fall of queen carlotto i mean you know, maybe Velvet took the, took the throne by force. Oh my god! And Velvet is such a would be at home in a John Waters film. Oh, I absolutely. Think. Oh, see, that's another alternate version. John oh. Waters presents the prequel. <laughs> yes, Gene is still alive, and so is John Waters. I'd say we make this shit happen. I'd just like to be happy to know that John Waters has maybe seen this movie. He's seen a lot of movies, and I hope this is one of them. John Waters commentary track for this, please, universe, give this to us or a Paul Stanley one, because I know Paul, because <laughs> Paul Stanley has some great snark about Gene during the 80s about his acting career. So, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. he did not want Gene to be an actor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got to do that. You got to do that. Mm-mm. That's like that's the Paul Stanley sass right there. Do not leave this nest, Gene. <laughs> <laughs> as as a complete aside, have you guys ever seen the Paul Stanley Folgers commercial? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, of course. <laughs> oh my God! I just every time I think about it, I oh, I have to go back and watch it, but I'll wait. <laughs> this is your wake up call. Time to reach. Go for it all. I know what 
As much crap as Gene Simmons gets for, you know, just being Gene Simmons in general, I actually really enjoyed his brief acting career. Yes. I I really had a lot of fun with his movies. That trifecta of him being a terrorist in this runaway and uh, wanted dead or alive. He was really good in all of those. He was really good in trick or treat. Even that brief part he had in Mike Judge's extract. He's really good in all of those. But I, I guess he just didn't feel like it was worth it in the long run or, you know, Paul made him quit. Who knows? But I, I really enjoyed him as an actor, you know, possibly more than as a performer, as a musician. Well, in his uh, reality show, I mean, after I watched a couple episodes of that, I was just like, OK, this is 100 percent scripted. Oh, of course. And I was able to kind of enjoy it as almost like a modern I Love Lucy. I mean, there was one where he <laughs> ended up getting uh dildo uh super glued to his hand because he was visiting carrot top so that was just an amazing <laughs> storyline with that and i was just like yeah this is totally i love lucy because then like the hot nurse comes to the room to try to take the dildo off of his hand and then uh you know his uh, uh shannon happens to show up in vegas right around that time i'm just like yeah yeah this this would have happened to lucy i can see that another lost opportunity is they should have made some of velvet's henchmen like people that have played with kids that that weren't really like you get Bob Kulik and Anton Fig and then you know <laughs> Eric Sanger <laughs> Tommy Thayer all the non all the non true canon kiss members and and he and he's fighting he keeps throwing like darts at a picture of any vincent <laughs> no i think gene actually was really talented as an actor i mean i thought um Growing up watching uh, both Runaway and Wanted Dead and Alive, or Dead or Alive, I thought I thought he was really, really good in that. And um, my guess is that he probably got, you know, Janine's always been uh, very openly a supporter of the capitalist system. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I think, oh yeah, I mean, he, he's going to go where the money is. I imagine, you know, staying with Kiss, and especially when they did the, you know, reunion and all of that, like that probably paid a lot more than, you know, being being a villain. In Hollywood, um, which is too bad, though, because, uh, you know, he's good. He actually is good. And, I mean, you think about the music he was making. You could tell he checked out because of the music because the Kiss albums in the 80s after Look It Up kind of start <laughs> going down a little bit. Like Asylum's not bad. And Animalize has some good tracks. Then you get like Hot in the Shade, Crazy Nights. And it's like, are, do you even care anymore? Do you even try and sir? You know? They, well, sometimes they cared too much. Look at music from The Elder. Oh, I love The Elder. I, <laughs> I do too, the but Elder. that was the one that really blew up in their face, wasn't it? Unfairly there, because I will. Oh, yeah. That was yeah. that was what that that's what happens when you try to do something different. And that's why 10 years later they put the makeup back on. Yeah. Yeah, sad, sad but true. That's also why we got, you know, songs like Everybody Needs a Reason to Live. Oh, that's, oh. But anyways, but yes, uh, he is awesome as Velvet. So let's talk about the finale of this film where we have the uh, mono a hermaphrodite with uh, Lance and Velvet going at it. And (laughs) I was reminded at one point, Heather, of uh, the Z-Man, like when... uh, Velvet reveals his little budding breasts. I was just totally reminded of the Z-Man at the end of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Oh, Mike, you're you're reading into my mind once again, because I seriously had that dialogue that Lance Rock says. 
You've been abroad all along, right, Barzell? <laughs> goddamn broad! <laughs> goddamn ugly broad, Barzell! <laughs> An ugly broad! <laughs> Even better, Lance bites him, her on the titty. I'll go with that. <laughs> Well, even and even further going back into my weird childhood, that was always another one of those. That was one of those movies that my mom told me about for years and said, but you're not seeing that one. (laughs) So when I finally saw Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, that was that was one of those massive, massive payoffs, because Uh for some reason she had this weird ability to know all those movies with a really strange gender politics for their time. And I ended up seeing all those when I was still in high school. Oh, but, it, oh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls in particular, that, like, yeah, there, there's no way Gene wasn't at least a little bit inspired by that. Yeah, except John Lazar was a, was a much more convincing. <laughs> oh, of course. Type than Gene, Gene Simmons, but um, but that's part of the charm. That's part of the film's weird charm is that it's it takes elements that make absolutely no sense. Okay, see but, now now the remake we get is. We put Gene Simmons in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. <laughs> oh. oh, my brain that, is rejecting that one. <laughs> that happened freaks me out. I cannot go there. Vinnie Vincent. No, no. Oh, Vinnie Vincent as Steve Man. <laughs> the, yes. Well, now, now we're not going for, I wasn't going for a good idea with that one, just a weird one. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I love in the climactic battle is at one point, Lance is like hanging off the railing, about to potentially crash to his... Which time? He does it like multiple <laughs> times! <laughs> Let me finish. That's a good point. But it's one where like Velvet's kind of like whipping his his hands and, and toying with them. And and all of a sudden, he, he's like, wait, you're so beautiful, or something like that. And she pauses like, oh... Like, oh, me, you know, I'm like, are you shitting me? Are you shitting me, movie? This is the villain, the super villain who has masterminded all of this, all of this, like, evil and very well-organized plan is disarmed by a compliment. It's, I was, it made me a little sad. It's like, oh, Velvet, you should have more self-esteem than that, girl. Yeah. <laughs> Velvet's just easily flattered. <laughs> <laughs> he tears her down with that whole thing where she's like, I'm the perfect being. I'm half man and half woman. And then uh, uh, Lance has to be like, oh, well, you're only half of a man. I'm a whole man. Just like that is so much better than what Velvet is. And I was just like, that really kind of smacks of being a little, uh, you know, sexist and maybe a little homophobic to me. I don't know. Uh, just seemed kind of weird. Yeah, that that was where I always thought of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls because I was thinking, well, Jean or Velvet should have said, no, I'm Superwoman. <laughs> <laughs> and then t- tells Lance to drink the uh, drink the black sperm of her vengeance. So. <laughs> yeah, which is funny that actually both both uh, male characters are Lance because you know you have the Lance Rock, the unwilling object of Z-Man's uh, physical affections, and then you have Lance Stargrove. So can you get more phallic of a name than Lance, please? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess Ramrod was too obvious. Yeah, I have it in my notes as Lance disarms Velvet and then he disarms the bomb. Yeah, and it's very fortunate that he's able to throw the <laughs> case, the briefcase with the control device and the the fire uh, stick or whatever that Cliff uh, fire gun is. Yeah. Oh, we didn't even talk about that, did we? That that his friend is just making a flame weapon. <laughs> but sometimes it works and sometimes it has like erectile dysfunction. <laughs> See, the, the, we're just peeling like an onion the many, many layers of this film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah because the, it's unable to perform in, at, at the climax. <laughs> hey, it happens. It happens to all of us. 
fire is it the fire blast i believe it's called fire blaster or something like that yes it is the fire blaster yeah so 80s so (laughs) 80s oh i know the 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 likelihood of him throwing these two things up almost like helter skelter and they they collide into each other and explodes it i again i laughed my ass off it brought me back to my happy place of that hobo exploding (laughs) on that motorcycle (laughs) I like to think what the what the room must have been like. The atmosphere of the script was being written, and like like the writers are all like, "Check this shit out. We're gonna do this. We're gonna have the have 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 the hero get whipped, and uh, have a, a guy call a girl bitch, but then say but. You and- never know what's gonna happen next, guys. His friend comes in with a gun, right? But it's not just any gun. You want to know what it's called? It's called the Fire Blaster. Oh, yeah. I think there might have been some ganja in the room. Or cocaine. It was the 80s. So, uh, were were you guys a little sad when Velvet died? I was a little sad. Yeah. I was, I was. But they do make the line about, you know, we didn't check the body. Yeah, I mean, they clearly just threw a dummy over that bench. (laughs) (laughs) The second of two really obvious dummies. Because there's that one really early in the movie where they just throw a guy down a flight of stairs and then the leg turns like backwards. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that was that was great. I actually referred to that one in my notes as awesome railing kill. It was very space mutiny. You know, we could get a sequel. That's what it felt like they were setting it up for, you know, because it's like Cliff and and Lance and then eventually Donja in that dune buggy driving off into the sunset. And, you know, kind of end on uh, uh, Arliss, just almost like, you know, perhaps we'll see that young man again. Who knows? Stock Rove! QN theme and is just glorious. Yet another glorious Never Too Young to Die song. Yeah, uh, oh, we didn't talk about the fact that this movie does the best thing you can do in a movie, which is when they're fighting at the dam near the end of the movie, and Velvet has the upper hand and makes sure to tell uh, Lance that you're never too young to die. <laughs> you can do nasty things and they never come back to you. You're never too young to die. That was an awesome Gene Simmons impersonation, Mike. That was that was good. And it, he got the titular line. That's, isn't that the goal of every actor to get the titular line? Oh, yeah. Well, do you yeah. guys do the same thing that I do, that whenever you hear the, the line, the, the title from the movie being said in the movie, do you applaud? I always almost do it in the theaters and do do it at home. I not What's more, <laughs> complete aside, you don't have to leave the city or anything, but I was watching that Liam Neeson movie, A Walk Among the Tombstones, a couple weeks ago, <laughs> and my wife was out of the room, and I paused the movie, and I said, get over here, get over here, they're doing it, they're doing it. And she said, what? And she comes in the room, and I, I hit, you know, play on the movie, and he starts walking among the tombstones, and I'm like, they're doing it! And she just looks at me, and she's like, you dumbass, and leaves the room. I don't necessarily applaud. My mind just always goes back to um, there uh, of an episode of Upright Citizens Brigade, where there's a video store clerk that keeps claiming to have titular lines in films that have no titular <laughs> lines. Did you know I had the title line in Star Wars? Actually, I wasn't aware there was a titular line in that movie. Yeah, well, I don't know about that, but I had the title line, Star Wars. I, I was in that scene where Han Solo's teaching Luke how to drive the Millennium Falcon. And and, and, and I'm on the ship, too, because I'm a stowaway. And, and I'm always on the run because I'm always stowing away. And, and, and I walk by, and, and I go, ah, oh boy, I'm just so tired of all these Star Wars. That scene wasn't in the movie. Yeah, it was. It, it got cut. I was so bummed out. Actually, I'm glad it got cut. Because a scene like that would completely take you out of the movie. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm glad it got cut, too. 
Did you know I had the title line in Out of Africa? Why do you feel compelled to come in here and tell me about these movies you were supposedly in? I really don't care about stuff like that. Yeah, I know. I don't care about stuff like that either. I was just saying that I had a titular line in Out of Africa. Titular, huh? Yeah. Okay, what scene were you in? Uh, I was in that scene where Robert Redford is teaching that old woman how to drive. You mean Meryl Streep? Yeah, Meryl Streep. She's one of those actresses people always forget her name. You know, actually, I find it easy to remember her name because she's one of the greatest American actresses alive. But she still looks like somebody's aunt to me. The scene I was in takes place in Africa, and and Robert Redford's teaching Meryl Streep how to drive, and 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 and, and there's all this traffic, and, and I drive up by next to him, I say, Ah, oh, boy, I'm just so tired of all this traffic. I, I just can't wait till I get out of Africa. So yeah, titular lines always just uh, make make me go back to that UCB moment. So, but this film is really. I, I would say this is one of the most ultimate 80s action films. Yeah, it, it really rides that line of of being as weird as the 80s, but as full of crazy explosions as the 80s also. Oh, it fights. The only thing that was missing was like I was I kept expecting probably because of seeing other 80s films, especially growing up, is that that Lance was going to have some background in martial arts. That was like the only element, really. You, you don't credit gymnastics as a martial arts. You've not seen Jim Cotta. Come on. He found a pommel horse in the middle of a village of crazy people. <laughs> gymnastics is everywhere. <laughs> it's all around you. Just have to look for it. Jim Cotta. Jim Cotta would probably be on that list too, but but it would be behind this film. This film would be high on my list of entertainment of 80s action films. It's it's one for the books. All right, we are going to take a break and we're going to play a pair of interviews. The first is with director Gil Bettman and the second is with cinematographer David Wirth and we'll be back with those right after these messages. <laughs> All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take us to church. Uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs> uh, is there anyone's coattails you rode in on to popularity? I'm the guy that f***ing burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, <laughs> horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. Yeah. People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one That is one star too many. <laughs> Let me tell you. The worst f***ing piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, God. Ugh. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. Uh, I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. Wife Jessica, I have an idea. What's that, husband Dustin? As you know, we love movies. Yes, dear, I know. But we also love podcasts. I'm aware, my love. And then there's this other part of us that really loves movie commentary tracks. Get to the point, sweetheart. Well, if we made a movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program, it would certainly be the best married couple movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program on the internet, right? Without doubt. But whatever would we call it? We are the Popcorn Poops. Popcorn Poops is a weekly podcast hosted by married couple Dustin and Jessica Kramer. That's us. Each week we choose a movie based on a monthly theme and then we sit down and record a syncable commentary track as we watch the movie. 
But what makes Popcorn Poop special is that you don't have to sync up our podcast to enjoy the show, so you can listen to us like you would any other standalone podcast. On our show, we like to talk about theory, story structure, genre conventions, and trivia with a healthy dose of dick jokes. Gotta have the dick jokes. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play Music. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram for frequent updates about the show, including our weekly movie still identification game. Visit us on the web at popcornpoops.com. We'll be waiting for you, and not in a creepy way. Okay, kind of a creepy way. Yeah, okay, fair warning. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, proudly resents, and you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know, it's messed up, right? Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, you're going to be hearing from the director of Never Too Young to Die, Mr. Gil Bettman. How did you get into the business? Went to UCLA, went to the film school, wanted to be a director, uh, graduated from UCLA. Actually, I didn't even graduate. I left before I got my degree, and I made a film, short film, and in those days, Universal Studios used to sign young talent to a seven-year contract that basically gave Universal the right over everything that you do as a writer, producer, director. So they kind of was called the seven-year slave contract. I, I guess it kind of grew out of the days when the studios felt a little bit out of touch because Peter Fonda made Easy Rider and it made all this money and it didn't look like, look like kids, you know, Dennis, you know, like, like kids, uh, you know, with a little money could do could make a little movie and make and and then the studios were making big you know we're making tour 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 and they kind of realized uh maybe we should tap into this talent and but that's over you know they don't do that anymore it's actually the same contract they signed spielberg to the same contract that's why he, he worked for universal at the beginning of his career exclusively uh but anyway so i went to work in television and episodic tv which i figured was kind of a way to break in I don't know if it was. I, uh, 
I could have gone to the AFI. I actually got accepted to the AFI, and I didn't go, which I kind of regret. But I went to work at Universal, basically, and kind of worked my way up into directing episodic TV. I was working as a post-production supervisor on for this guy, Glenn Larson, who was the executive producer of Fall Guy, Knight Rider, DJ and the Bear, Galactica, Magnum, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He, you know, he was kind of a hit factory. I was his post-production supervisor, so I made myself invaluable. I had to threaten to quit to let him let me direct an episode of a TV show. I had to say, you know, if you don't, if you don't let me do, do one BJ and the Bear next season, I'm going to quit. So, you know, I put a gun to his head and he, and then so I did, I did, I saw TV. That's where I kind of like cut my teeth, you know, that's a really uh, good education for, well, I learned how to direct stunts because I was doing all these shows involved car stunts. I did a bunch of Night Riders. You know, I was a, that was a, that was the most successful series I ever worked on. Uh, you know, and then I got tired of, uh, you know, I'm now I'm now a professor at Chapman University in the film school, and I've been there for, for 20 years now. But John Badham, who directed Saturday Night Fever, is, is my one of my colleagues. You know, and Badham says, you know, when you do, he Badham came up through Episodic TV at Universal, same as me, and uh, he said, you know, when you're, you know. Working in episodic TV is kind of like training to be a chef and then getting a job, you know, as a chef at, at McDonald's. You, you know, you kind of like, okay, you know, requires some technical skill, but your burger had better taste like the billion other burgers or that, you know, that's what was really required. And so I, I stopped doing episodic and I did a bunch of rock videos or music videos. And then that, then I did a low budget movie and then, and then Stephen Paul, who was the producer of Never Too Young to Die, actually got my name from a woman named Beth Broday, who had a small company that did music videos. And I did I had done some music videos for her and he Stephen was looking for somebody who could who had some experience directing stunts was cheap. That's how I got that gig. What was that experience like for you? I mean it's a very interesting cast that you had. Well, the cast was Stephen Paul's. It was his. I, when I came on the project, the cast was. They had another director who they let go. I forget who. I got kind of a young guy like me who does some. I think a guy had gone to the AFI and they let him go, and I came on. And by then it was Vanity, John Stamos. I think that Stephen's mother, Dorothy, you know, was the casting director, Dorothy Costner. See, she cast everything. Basically, you know, Stephen was this boy genius, you know, whose mom and dad were. It was a mom. It was a, it was a you know the whole family was there. His brother Stuart, his sister was in the movie Bonnie. It was a whole package deal. It was a whole Paul family. Yeah, and Hank, his dad was there every day, and John Voight, John Voight, who was Hank's Hank's, and, and I think to this day, Stephen Paul. And John Voight share offices because basically they're both completely crazy. Yeah, swear to God. I mean, John Voight is like one of the craziest people I've ever met in my life. Like he's from he's from outer space. He was in the office all the time. I was always and Hank Paul Stevens' dad is a very nice guy, a very very sweet guy. And uh, but he's he is also kind of like a dreamer. You know, he's he's a dreamer. I mean. I don't know what they're doing now, but I mean, Stephen's been making movies. He's still making movies. His name was on Ghost Rider. 
And and he did that series, Baby Geniuses, which about babies that could talk, which was, Stephen has no imagination. All that Stephen knows how to do is to see that there's something that has some, I mean, for, for example, his whole idea for Never Too Young to Die, the reason he wanted to do that was because he thought he could, he could springboard off of the Bond franchise and create his own Bond fair franchise. Cully Broccoli had Bond. Stephen Paul would have Son of Bond. He literally thought that that was what was going to happen. Like Superman, Superboy. You know, he thought he was going to create the Superboy was comparable, the Superboy of the Bond of the Bond franchise. That's because Stephen has no imagination. All he knows how to do it's like he's a salesman. He's a great salesman. That's how he became a. That's how he gets the money to make movies. He can go into people's offices. He's the most charming, confident, cocky guy in the world. He walks into your office, and next thing you know, you bought his snake oil. He he got some money. I don't know where he got. I mean, he you know I guess he got a bank loan. That's probably what he did. He probably got a bank loan. But he'd made a bunch of little movies before, so he got a bank loan, and then I guess he got a deal with William Morris. Um, and I think William Morris, I think Vanity and Stamos uh, came as a sort of package deal from William Morris. I think that was that they, they had two young actors that they thought could profit from being in a low-budget movie, John Stamos and Vanity, and uh, and they sold them to to Stephen. And, uh, and that because when I came on, that was it. The deal with the deal with them was signed. And I don't know how Gene Simmons got involved. Maybe he came to William Morris. But that was a piece of brilliant casting, Gene, Gene Simmons. I mean, that was genius. And I don't know quite, I don't know, I don't know. You, you know, I, would you like to talk to Gene Simmons? <laughs> of course. All right, well, look, I, I thought you'd probably like to. You should talk to him. This guy's brilliant. I mean, he's amazing. He's the most, he's one of the most amazing people you'll ever meet. He's one of a kind. And you have to admit, Gene Simmons, I mean, no one knows who Stephen Paul is, but a lot of people know who Gene Simmons is. I mean, Kiss, I mean, the idea that Kiss, no talent rock band, is still filling stadiums today, and they're 70 years old. I mean, that's, that's marketing genius. You, you know, in the script, what, what, was, what was good about the script was Lorenzo Semple Jr. did a pass on, you know? He'd done a Bond film. He'd written Never Say Never or... Or, or, I don't know, he'd written a Bond film, I forget, Lorenzo. He probably got Lorenzo Semple Jr. through William Morris or some other agency, because he and his brother Stuart wrote the initial script. And uh, you could tell because there were malapropisms in the script. Stephen is completely self-educated. He was an actor on Broadway in New York City as a kid growing up. So he never really went to school. And that's how he got into the film business was he met Kurt Vonnegut when he was doing a play that Kurt Vonnegut had written on Broadway. And through Vonnegut, he met, he met Marty Feldman and um, that actress who was in his first movie. I forgot. Slapstick. No, actually, I'm, I'm wrong now. He didn't meet Madeline Kahn. He met Susan George. Susan George starred in his first movie that he directed with Elliot Gould and Susan George. And I think they were both in the cast of this play that Stephen, at age 16 or 17, was acting in in New York City. He got her to agree to be in his first movie. As I recall, it's a very poorly directed movie because Stephen, as I said, he has no imagination, uh, but he can sell people on, on the ideas. 
Do you, remember, do you know his first movie that he did? I forgot the name of it. Yeah, it was uh, Falling in Love Again. Yeah, and his dad, Hank, wrote it. And it was based on Hank's experiences as a boy you know, growing up in Brooklyn or the Bronx or some place in New York. And Elliot Gould played the Hank Paul kind of character. But Lorenzo Semple probably, you know, Stephen and Stewart wrote the first draft of the script. And because there were still things in it, they, they didn't know how to write English prose. They were both child actors who never really got an education. You know, they, they like grew up on sets, right? So they were being educated by um, studio teachers, you know? So there were things in the, in, the, in the script that Stephen had written, like Ragnar is venting with anger. Yeah, really, that was in the script, you know? And then they paid Lorenzo to come in and do a rewrite. And Lorenzo probably was the guy who thought of Ragnar being a hermaphrodite, which is one of the best ideas in the script. And you see, actually, the kind of the, my idea for the script was when I read it, I thought, oh, you know, th- there's no way we can compete with the Bond franchise. We've got $3 million to make this whole movie. So the only way we can do this and do it in a way that's going to have any dignity, any artistic self-respect, is to make fun of ourselves. Because this is a joke. We're making a Bond film for $3 million. You've got to be kidding. So, and also, how original is the story? It's not nah, the same old Bond story, you know? Let's make a joke out of it. And let's make, again, I thought, well, okay, Ragnar's a hermaphrodite. Okay, and all that stuff, like, all of his followers are whacked out, drugged, drugged out, you know, low-life punks. That was my idea. And that they're all whack, they're all having these sort of, like, they're totally out of their head on and, uh, and that they have this language, you know, that they speak, you know, that it was... I forget you know how Ragnar didn't, re- he spoke his own kind of, that I got from, I, I stole that idea from uh, Clockwork Orange. Alex and his droogs, you know, have their own language. I thought, you know, those scenes where, you know, but the, basically what happened was I wanted to make it like we're making fun of ourselves. This is, this is a joke. I mean, it's a Bond film. Okay. But the, the, the bad guy is a hermaphrodite. Let's have fun. And, Wink, wink, you know, this is a Bond film. But Stephen, I remember, I, I asked him if I could do a rewrite on the script. And Stephen held up his, he was sitting at his desk, he held up his pen. And he said, any changes to the script go through this pen. I didn't get to camp it up as much as I really wanted to. So that's why there are elements of camp, but the camp kind of doesn't quite, not campy. I kind of wanted it to be, you know, Rocky Picture Horror Show meets Rambo. Was Lazenby already aboard when you came aboard? Lazenby. Oh, yeah. That was, yeah, he was there. He was part of the deal. That, that was kind of sad, you know. There was a guy who could have, you know, did one Bond film, and then I think it was the story was, I'm not sure, but the story was, I guess he was sort of so much so difficult on the set that they just uh, said, that's it, you know. that You're not working with us again. I think there were a lot of Pauls who were on the set when you were working, but was were Stephen and Stewart pretty active participants when you were directing this? Yes. I mean, Stephen was there every day. Stewart was kind of in the shadows. Uh, yeah, Stephen, yes. I, I, um, I remember, yeah, he, he, but Stephen was kind of, Stephen was easy to work for compared to some of the producers Compared to the producer of my first movie who I directed, who was a complete, who always thought that everything was going wrong and everything I was doing, he was this Spanish guy. He used to say, 
Mr. Batman, what you do today is shit. It's shit what you do. Steven was so happy. Steven has no real judgment. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, oh, we're making a movie. It's a Bond film. The actors are pretty good. Uh, you know, like, wow. You know, it's like he really has no discretion. He has no gut. He knows. He doesn't know, you know, if it's really working or not. It's just like he knows, oh, it's a movie. That's about as much as he, it's about as far as he can get. And he was very happy all the way through. That's why, you know, I got I got a screen credit on it, and I didn't want a screen credit. He gave me a screen credit. He said, oh, you know, I'm going to make you, you know, just like, thank you so much for working on the script. And I just thought, basically, because I didn't get to really make it the Rocky, Rocky Picture Horror Show meets Rambo, I, I didn't want my name on it as a writer. You know? This is a, a silly question, but I've always been curious. Are we supposed to know that Gene Simmons is both characters? I mean, because it's pretty obvious to me. Is it just that John Stamos and Vanity don't know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, we didn't have the money to really do the makeup right. You know, that would have taken some prosthetics, some real prosthetics, blah, blah, blah. Right. But I mean, you know, that's another reason why I probably wanted to camp it up, you know. So you're not supposed to know that Gene Simmons is both Ragnar and uh, Carruthers. Yeah. I mean, come on. Give me a break. So... Well, so this is Gene Simmons with a beard on him, and uh, I have to say, you got one of the best, better performances from Vanity that I saw in anything. I've never seen any of her other stuff, you know. I mean, actually, I did a, I did a music video with Vanity after this ended. Well, she was crazy, you know. I mean, she's she just died at fifty seven, and I thought, well, that's what a life of drugs and crazy living does to you. I, I did a lot of work for Sammy Hagar, the guy who was the lead singer for Van Halen, and uh, I did. I, my one of my most successful music videos was "I Can't Drive '55." So I directed that, and so Hagar and I became buddies, and we're still buddies to this day. And as his career, he's kind of gone into eclipse, but he still made has made. I mean, I've, he's done music videos to some of his other albums since he left Van Halen, and I've done most of them. There's a guy from no, you know, Sammy grew up dirt poor. You know, no education, dropped out of high school, and and he's made. You know, he remember he has that tequila brand, Cabo Wabo Tequila. Yeah, he sold that to Campari for uh, uh, I don't know, eighty, ninety million dollars, something. I mean, he he is a killer businessman. You know, and Gene Simmons, Gene Simmons is from nowhere. Gene Simmons grew up in Israel on and went to school in Brooklyn in the, uh, the yeshiva. Gene Simmons' mother was a single mom; she didn't have two cents to rub together. That's why. Did you know the story about why you know, Jim King was in a yeshiva? Well, Gene went to yeshiva, and everybody thought, well, Gene Simmons, you know, the guy with his tongue out, you know, the, who's, who, who slept with a million women, was once a yeshiva boy. Well, <laughs> the reason for that is that his mother was a single mother. They were living in Brooklyn. She was a recent immigrant from Israel. She wanted her son to be safe. And at the yeshiva, you know, you drop him off at 6 in the morning, you come back at 7, 7 at night, and they're still reading the Torah. All right, so Vanity was a woman from poverty and very little parental, no, you know, very, no, no nuclear family, et cetera. And it showed, you know, and she, she just, she didn't get the values and the common sense that you need to make it in Hollywood because in, or in, in the entertainment industry. When you're in the entertainment industry, it's like, you know, you can, she just like, she, you know, that, that saying like, don't believe the hype. Well, she believed the hype. She just didn't have, and then, uh, you, you know, um, so she was all over the place emotionally, whereas 
Gene Simmons and Sammy Hagar are businessmen. And if you want to have a long career in the entertainment, if you want to be Tom Cruise or Charlotte Johansson or the Rolling Stones, you know, you have to have good managers and good business sense. Surround yourself with good people and keep your feet on the ground. Don't believe the hype. This is one of John Stamos's first movie roles, I think. How was he to work with at this point? Uh, lovely. He and I were really, you know, we went, you know, we socialized after the film was made, and he was doing his first television. He had a role in a series that had Jack Klugman in it. Didn't last very long. It was a. It was before he got on the Full House. He did another TV series, and I went out to a taping. You know, that's another example. You know, John's mother, he, John was a Greek kid from Orange County, and he and his mother were, like, super tight. And you met, you met his mother, his mother came on the set, and you just realized this, this kid is as sweet and as sane as you can get because his mother loved him. And there's another example of a guy who, without a whole lot of talent, has had an amazing career. He's still going strong with stuff. Yeah, yeah, he, he's very, very centered and not at all full of himself. What you needed for that role, you needed a young Tom Hardy. I mean, have you seen Lawyer? When I saw that movie, I thought, who is that kid? You know, I mean, he has lightning coming out of his eyes. When he's going for you, when he's ready, when he's gearing up for a fight, you better run. That's what you need. That's what you need. You need, uh, that's not John. You know, John, John's good. Had a lot of stuff, but that's he's not the son of Bond, you know. I mean, that's I mean, you think of Sean Connery as being a sort of archetypal Bond. I mean, Connery's a great actor, but when he's pissed, watch out. I mean, I guess it takes a kind of a gravitas. See, Daniel Craig, that's the best thing about it. He kind of looks ugly at moments, you know what I mean? His boy, his mouth is crooked, but it's it's man, when he, he, you know, watch out, don't you don't want to get on the wall, his bad side, and you're in trouble. You gotta have that. And he John doesn't have he doesn't have that. Was it challenging at all filming all of the um gymnastic kind of stuff that you had him doing? I imagine you used a, a at least one body double for him quite a bit. Yeah, we used a double and uh he worked pretty hard to, to learn some gymnastics. You know, he, John was very conscientious. Uh you know, a joy to work with. Uh all that stuff was easy. You know. And when the film came out, was it pretty well received or? Oh, that's a joke. <laughs> well, we came out the same weekend as Cobra, which was the new Stallone film. And, you know, the ad for Cobra was Stallone with a couple of bandoliers of ammunition or over his shoulders and a, some sort of submachine gun. And I think he had. I don't know, like a, a matchstick coming out of his, he's jumping on a matchstick. And, you know, and so we're supposed, and then so we have John Stamos with a gun in his hand, and uh, the new Bond is Stargrove or something. Yeah, it didn't make any, it, it didn't make any money in the theaters. It opened and it completely, it disappeared in two weeks. We got a, you know, we had nationwide distribution through Redstone, which was a, which is an international, which is a national, theater chain uh, distributor. So he got a distribution deal. But he, but the deal was, he, I think his budget for, for advertising was maybe $500,000 at that. 
you know, and you just, you make a movie for $3 million, you're not going to sell it unless you have $3 million of advertising. I remember going to see it in a bunch of theaters around L.A., and they were all empty. It was really, and you know, that that was sort of a lesson, which is if you can make a good movie, because it's a perfectly good movie for a being movie, you know. You can, make a, you can make a good movie and nobody will come see it if you don't, if you don't, if you don't have some element and you don't have the money to distribute it properly. The other thing, here's, a, here's another sort of example of where Stephen just didn't know what the hell he was doing. He didn't know what he had, because he should have marketed it not as Cobra, but as, here's what, I at that stage of the game had met Bob Zemeckis, the, the, you know, the Oscar-winning director, and we'd become friends, and he was kind of my patron in a way. I mean, he, he actually tried to get me, he actually at one stage said, I'm going to do for you what Spielberg did for me, I'm going to get you a studio movie. That never happened. But so when I shot this film and I cut it, I went out and showed it to Zemeckis because, and he, you know, he thought, I guess this was actually, he, he then used the directorial sort of, uh, you know, validity of the film as a, as a sort of a tool to try to sell me. But anyway, so Zemeckis looked at it and we took it out to his, to Amblin. Zemeckis had an office in Amblin. We took it out there and we looked at it on a flatbed, me, Stephen, and the editor, and Bob Zemeckis. Actually, Bob gave us the idea of crazy opening where they're going to, they bring that woman out and they're going to crucify her or something. That was all shot after principal photography. To, to sort of set up Ragnar and his crazy band. That was Zemeckis' idea, that scene. And we did that a year after we completed principal photography. Then Zemeckis said to Stephen Paul, look, here's how you market this movie. Here's the image you want to sell. You have Ragnar, like, King Kong, he's huge, with his tongue out. And in his palm, he's holding vanity, like Fay Ray. That's what Bob Zemeckis said. That's the only way you're going to sell this film. And, Steve, you know, Stephen Paul, you know, basically, you know, that, it was a Bond film. That's all, that's all Stephen could say. It almost sounds like a wonder that this movie got made at all. It wouldn't get made today. Stephen Paul could talk people out of money, you know? And he talked the banker. He talked some people out of three million dollars, and he made this movie. He, I don't think. We, I don't think. We, I, I don't think you guys get the bank book. Who knows? I don't know that side of the business, but I mean, I was always amazed. It's like you know, Steve Miles. My thought about Stephen Paul was that you could put, you could give him the script of Citizen Kane and the script of Debbie Does Dallas, and if you took the cover page off of it, right? You know, said film A, film B. And you and you gave it to him and read him and say which one's better? They are both pretty good. Yeah, he's still producing today. He's got stuff in production currently. Yeah, I know. He's, uh, you know, he could he could sell ice to the Eskimos. So you said you've been uh, teaching now for like twenty years. Yeah, I quit the film business. Zemeckis tried to get me a studio movie. We had a script that Phil Hartman had written. Phil had written this genius black comedy called Mr. Fix-It. And I had been up to direct it when it was at, it was at MGM. And, and I went in and had a meeting to direct it uh, with uh, Alan Ladd. I guess Alan Ladd ran MGM at that stage, Alan Ladd Jr. And then uh, they passed on it, and it went into turnaround. And Zemeckis had read the script, so Zemeckis set it up at Warner Brothers. He got Mark Canton at Warner's to say, yeah, okay, well, you know, Bob will produce it, I'll direct it, and Phil will do a rewrite on it. So we did that, and it was the best black comedy 
every artistic person who we gave it to, every every director, every every actor, every you know, every producer, every writer thought, oh wow, this is this is hysterical. But every studio direct, every studio head who we gave it to hated it because you know it was just too it was too it was too dark, and they don't they don't they don't get that. You know what I mean? That that frightens them. So Warner's passed on, and then Zemeckis and I had meetings with and the head of every studio. You know, Zemeckis went to every studio, and we had I sat in a room with Bob Zemeckis and the head of every studio at that time. They all passed on it, and I just said, "Shit, you know, like something's wrong here. You know, the idiots are running the asylum." And uh, I, and then my mother was an English professor, so I, you know, I, and I I went to Harvard. <laughs> So, um, you know, I can stand up in front of a group of people and um, talk. So, yeah, so I, I, I've become a film school professor and I have no, no, I've, I'm done. My, my movie career is over. It was over, it was over 20 years ago. And it's the best thing that ever happened to me because, it, you know, the, the film business is a cruel mistress. John Batham is doing ep- television episodes. He's doing episodes of what I think it's called Phantom. Yeah, I know he was working on Supernatural for a while there, too. Yeah, oh, no, that's it, Supernatural, Supernatural. Yeah, he's still working on Supernatural. If I'm going to dedicate the amount of effort that it takes to hustle your business, your, your, you know, it, 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 it's, that's a full-time job. And to take on a full-time hustling job to get episodes of Supernatural, I'm sorry. Life is too short. But I, I do understand why John does it, because... Once you become a director, you know, it's kind of like nothing comes, nothing else is as much of a kind of an ego boost, you know? And, and so you, you want that ego boost of being the the king of the set. And it, it's really, even if it's supernatural, even if it's a TV show, you still get, you're still, you're still in charge. And that's very, that's, that's, you know, it's riding, it's riding the tiger. Once you've ridden the tiger, nothing else comes but you, you you know but i'm uh if riding a tiger means kissing the heinies of the guys who run the studios then forget it all right next up we're going to be hearing from the director of photography for never too young to die and a whole lot of other things mr david worth i'm doing an episode on never too young to die and i was curious what do you remember about that production how was that one for you uh, it was a fun production. I met the director, Gil Bettman. Uh, he interviewed me, and because I'd, uh, I'd done two Clint Eastwood films, he knew I was fast and efficient, and so we wanted to work together, and, and we did. I discovered he had been a protege of Bob Zemeckis and done a lot of second units and a lot of action work at Universal, and uh, this was his, I believe this was maybe his f- second or third uh, directing uh, film he had directed. And he was very efficient. He was a really good guy. Uh, and we got along extremely well. He got out of the film business uh, much sooner than I did. He retired into academia and became a tenured professor at Chapman University in Orange, California. See, Never Too Young to Die was in the mid-80s. 20 years later, almost maybe 18 years later, uh, by 2006, 2007, when Gil was already a tenured professor at uh, Chapman University, 
he called me to come and fill in for another director friend, John Badham, who was going on a sabbatical for six months. And that's how I, that's how I transitioned into academia. So, uh, and became a film professor. It was all because of the networking I'd done to meet Gil and work with Gil on Never Too Young to Die. So I have very fond memories. So at this point in your career, when you're, you're being the cinematographer on Never Too Young to Die, you had already directed quite a few films on your own. So how is that kind of working with another director as the DP on, a, on his film? Well, I had begun as a director of photography and editor for, uh, for many years um, because I wanted to uh, discover what the camera could give me, what the lenses could give me, and what the editing room and post-production could, uh, could give me uh, and what I needed to know, what I needed to cover for each scene uh, in order to be able to tell the story of the film. And I was still in the process of working that out. I'd already directed a few films, but I'd most recently been DP on the, the Clint Eastwood films, and I directed a, a couple of films overseas also. But uh, working with Gil was, was great. It was just like getting back on the bike again. I mean, I, uh, I began as a director of photography, a cinematographer, and I, I, I really never lost that love for the camera and for being behind the camera and making it all work. How was that for you to shoot all of these amazing ac action sequences? We had multiple cameras a lot. I had also another dear friend with me as the main camera operator, Doug Ryan, who had been one of my uh, second camera operators when I did Bronco Billy. When I met Doug, I realized uh, what a talent he was. He had gotten into the film business because uh, he was a, a military advisor on Apocalypse Now in the Philippines. And Vittorio Storaro had begun to use him as a, one of the camera operators, so that's how he got into the union. Uh, and so I was so thrilled to to work with Doug, and he uh, he was instrumental in introducing me to Vittorio. And then later, when I was in Rome to do a feature there, I I called Vittorio and had a wonderful dinner with him at his home with his family. So so Doug was always a joy to be around and uh, a really good guy. As far as the action, we just put, shot as much as we possibly could with multiple cameras on everything that was happening. And I use a, a, a lot of uh, practical and available light so I can work very quickly. And we would just shoot as much coverage as possible because I knew that Gil wanted a lot of coverage and a lot of accelerated pacing in the editing. And he had been, as I said, a music video director. He knew what was required for that, and so that's what we tried. Uh, we tried to really put a lot of bang for the buck uh, onto the big screen. The next film that you did, Kickboxer, were you both DP and director on that one? I was doing a big second unit uh, on a feature called Inner Space. Joe Dante was the director. Uh, it was a huge, huge second unit, and I, I had to leave that film early to do Bloodsport. They were very kind uh, uh, and gave me a nice send off at Warner's when I, you know, the, because they knew it was a, it was a step for me to go outside the country and DP a feature in Hong Kong, and it was with some new guy called Jean Claude Van Damme, which nobody knew because it was his first film. It's Bloodsport. It was is what led me to be able to direct Kickboxer. 
because I got along so well with the Hong Kong crew. Uh, I'm married to a Chinese from Singapore. I think I'm spiritually more Eastern than I am Western. And the crew and I just got on famously. The the director on Bloodsport, Newt Arnold, had been an assistant director for Sam Peckinpah. So that, that was the reason I wanted to sign on to that film. I wanted to work with Newt. And he was very, very prepared and shot a lot of coverage on Bloodsport. We shot 240,000 feet of film. And when we were doing the Kumite scenes, again, I, I built all the lighting into the sets. They were all pre-lit, even though it was a huge soundstage in Hong Kong. It was all pre-lit so that I could have three Panavision cameras shooting every fight scene, three cameras wide, then three cameras tight, then handheld on the mat, and then all of the, the highlight kicks and punches and knockouts in slow motion. And we were just we were just doing nothing for a whole week but shooting fight scenes. And as a result, I set a record. Uh, we averaged over 70 setups a day, and I had a high of 93. It was all quality work on Bloodsport, and and so that work on Bloodsport, it went out, and when it performed well, I, I told the producer I wanted to direct the next one, and uh, that was how I, I I I had to actually go in and work for six months for free, prepping the film, storyboarding the film, polishing the script, doing the casting, working on the advertising, before I had my deal when we when we finally left for Hong Kong, and that's how I ended up directing. Uh, uh, kickboxer. Also, after the f- first few days of rushes, John Claude wasn't happy with the photography. We were using a, a photographer because since I was directing, they didn't want me to DP as well. But I did have to go in and adjust the Kumite lighting, the lighting in the in the ring, because John Claude wasn't happy with the way that DP had done it. So I, I made it look uh, uh, more like we had done putting the lights on top and shooting straight down on John claude to emphasize his muscles. And I, I, I made that correction. But I was not the DP on Kickboxer. I was too busy polishing the script and scouting locations and doing the storyboarding and preparing to direct that film and uh, directing it, even though Bloodsport was all shot in Hong Kong. And we shot, and, and we, we took 42 days to shoot it and, and shot 240,000 feet of film. I was able to streamline the production of Kickboxer to the point where even though we shot in two countries, Hong Kong and Bangkok, I still kept the schedule to only 36 days and only shot and shot less than 150,000 feet of film. Mr. Efficiency, I'm known as under, under schedule and under budget. Well, it seems like you were kind of really in your element for a little while there with these martial arts films because you went on to do the two Lady Dragon films as well. Again, they had seen my work on Bloodsport and Kickboxer, and the son of the producers happened to be uh, completing his degree at USC and sought me out and found me, and had I had lunch with him, and they said, do you want to come and do uh, a martial arts film in Indonesia? I happened to be unemployed at the time, and I'd been unemployed for about six months, so uh, even though I played hard to get, I was going to go anywhere on the planet I needed to go to do my next movie. I had no idea that doing the two films in Indonesia would be the closest thing to filmmaking hell that I'd ever been through. Yeah, they were extremely difficult to do. 
um, because the Indonesians were used to having a week of pre-production and a week of post-production and delivering something that they called a film that they had never been able to sell internationally. And I said, okay, once I realized what I was getting into, when I, once I got there and saw what the level was, I'd say, well, let's have a production meeting. And they'd say, well, we can ask for a production meeting, but the crew might not come. And I said, and why is that? It said, he said, they said, well, because we hire them by the year. So they just come and go as they please. I said, okay, I see what I'm in. So when I saw the level of the production I was going to get and the level of the craftspeople I was going to be working with, I designed a 36-day schedule, same as I'd had on, on Kickboxer. I could have done this film in 18 days anywhere else on the planet. But I realized, uh, and I was correct, that I was going to get screwed out of probably half a day every single day because of the level of efficiency of the crew. And this is where I discovered that as a director, you need to be very prepared, you need to be storyboarded, you need to be pre-lit, and you also need to go into every day with plan A, B, C, D, and E, because you're going to certainly wind up getting effed. And I got effed on, on Lady Dragon every day of the week. I had to throw away maybe... 25% of the footage that was out of focus. Luckily, I shot three cameras on everything. So I was, I was able to dodge around that. But the level of, of technical accomplishment was just not there. The lab was so bad in Indonesia, I had to ship the negative, the exposed negative, to Hong Kong, wait for it to be processed, ship it back to Indonesia, wait for it to come out of customs so I didn't have dailies and I didn't have weeklies. Guess what I had? Monthlies. That's exactly what I had. I had monthlies. It was, and it was, it was, it was a little bitter for Lady Dragon 2. Again, uh, I delivered on time and on budget, and I said, if you give me 36 days and you give me three cameras and you give me the editing I need and a real post-production sound person in Hong Kong, that I can count on, I will deliver you a film that you can sell internationally. And that's exactly what I did. I delivered them that film, and they went to the film markets and sold it internationally. And that's how I got Lady Dragon 2, which wasn't called Lady Dragon 2. It had nothing to do with Lady Dragon. It was called Fist of, uh, uh, Angel of Fury. Uh, but because Cynthia was in it and because Lady Dragon did so well, the producers, the distributors just called it Lady Dragon 2. How was Cynthia to work with? A dream. The best. Absolutely the best. Cynthia had already done a film with them uh, that they were not able to sell internationally because they only got a week of pre-production. And then they shot it and they had a week of post-production and it was it was awful. They had made 75 films and they were Asian. You know, they were in Indonesia. So I couldn't. My wife is from Singapore, and I know the Asian dance. You can't criticize them or you lose them. You have to say, oh, those are wonderful earrings that you've made out of those sandals. What a great job. So uh, I had to dodge around all of that, but I was able to dodge around it and make it work, and they sold it internationally. And for Lady Dragon 2, I insisted that I have a, a monitor and at least I didn't have as much out of focus, and I was able to 
to deliver a better film uh, than than Lady Dragon was one was. And but I'll tell you, it was still it was still very difficult. I still needed uh, 36 days instead of the normal 18 that I would do for a film of this size, 18 to 24, uh, because they wouldn't they would, you know, you'd go to location. They say, oh, we forgot the wardrobe. Or you'd go to a location and they said, oh, we don't have the key. Or we'd go to a location they say, oh, we forgot to get the permits. On and on and on and on and on. But, and I thought, I really thought that those productions, uh, I felt that during different stages of both of those productions, that they were going to kill me. Literally, I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a heart attack here and die. Uh, but it didn't kill me. And as Nietzsche said, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. And I came out of those two productions insisting with other producers that looked me up then that I could, I wanted to DP and direct that I, t- I said, if, if I direct your movie, I'll throw in Clint Eastwood's DP for free. Because th- on those two films, I, I didn't go there to DP. I just went there to direct. But when I saw the level of what I was getting, I had to DP. I had to operate. I had to be my own first AD. I had to supervise all my lighting. I had to literally do everything all day, every day on two productions to get them done. And I came out of it on the other end, knowing now that I could feel that I was really more comfortable DPing and directing because I could get all the lighting done beforehand and then just work with the actors on the day. And it saved me a lot of extra conversations. Your question was about Cynthia. Cynthia is the best, most professional uh, performer I have ever worked with. One of the top, one of the absolute top. She had worked in Indonesia. There wasn't craft service. There wasn't a place to go to the bathroom. There wasn't water on the set. She was out there fighting every day with Richard Norton, getting knocked down in the in the muck and grime of the Indonesian soul and locations, and not one complaint ever from Cynthia. Not one word of complaint. She was a professional because she she learned she she'd learned the hard way in Hong Kong, and in Hong Kong they treat stunt people like styrofoam cups, and they're disposable. And Cynthia was was the best person I'd ever worked with anywhere because I was in hell because of of the lack of of production. I'd ask for a flag and they'd bring me a piece of wood with the end with the end whittled down. You know, I mean, it was just and she just she was a dream to work with, never complained, showed up every day, fought all day, every day, acted all day, every day and was just a dream. And I said to myself, a lot of these people who are on TV series and on big films in La La Land with their lattes and their assistants could learn a lot from someone as professional under pressure and in difficult situations as Miss Cynthia Rothrock. Absolutely the best. I'm so glad to hear that. She seems so underappreciated. You know, people, of course, they know Van Damme, they know Seagal, they know Stallone, but Rothrock I would put right up there with all of these guys. She was. And there was a point where she and Stallone were going to do a film together and it was going to be directed by William Friedkin. And Friedkin kept dicking and dicking and dicking and dicking around with the script and delay after delay after delay. And eventually Stallone had to go on to something else. And it never, ever happened for her. 
And that would have been that would have set her up big time to have a, f- a feature film with Stallone. That broke my heart when I heard that. That's that's how shit happens in this business. So how does your experience on that compare to your experience on the shark attack films? First of all, I'm the guy that does every job that comes across his desk. I don't pick and choose. I never had the ability to pick and choose. I didn't want to pick and choose because my heroes were guys like John Ford, who had done 50 10-day westerns before he ever made his first major feature, or D.W. Griffith, who made 450 one- and two-reel films before he ever made his first feature and invented the language of filmmaking in the process. So I knew that I would never make, I would never even do the 50 films that John Ford did before he made his first major feature to get his chops. So I would take anything that came across my, my desk to get my chops. Uh, and the Shark Attack movies, I had been networking with the guys at New Image for 10 years at the, at the, um, Film market. That's it. That's what it was. I would and I would network with Avi Lerner and Danny Lerner and Boaz Davidson and John Thompson. And John Thompson, I had met uh, when I was uh, doing uh, a film in Israel um, in Chain of Command, the Michael Dudikoff film. So, so when I got to uh, when I got to uh, I was finally Danny Lerner called me in and gave me a and plopped a script down on the table. And said, how would you like to go to South Africa and make Shark Attack 2? I said, I'm your guy. And uh, I went to Shark I went to South Africa. They'd done, a, they'd done Shark Attack 1, and it hadn't done that well because it was called Shark Attack. But guess what? There were no shark attacks in the film. They had made a, a two-ton mechanical shark that they dragged out into the ocean and expected it to perform. So they had fucked up very badly. And knowing the history of, of Jaws and having done the second unit, the big second unit uh, with Glenn Randall on, um, on the Remo Williams film uh, where we'd done a, a, a dog attack film. And Glenn Randall is a great second unit director and I learned so much working, working with him. And by watching him do the dog attack film, I realized I knew how to do a shark attack film. I needed dummy heads. I needed dummy shark, biting dummy shark heads to do the close-ups of the biting and the blood spurting. And I needed dummy sharks to pull by the, the, the boat to show the size of them. And then I need to use stock footage of real sharks underwater coming and going. And I needed shots of fins going left and right through the frame. So in the editing room, I could be I could be cutting to my fins going left, my big shark being towed by the boat, then a real shark underwater, then then somebody falling in the water, and then my shark fins turning, and then a shark approaching, and then cut to a real shark documentary of a real shark opening his jaws, then cut to my biting heads, biting somebody and blood spurting. I knew that I could make all the pieces to make it work, and I did. I had to make all the pieces for me in South Africa, and that was also a great experience uh, with nearly uh, with a couple of female producers working out of Cape Town. Uh, but I was told uh, we were, we did most of our shark attacks. But I was told I had to go to Bulgaria to uh, use the two uh, the two ton mechanical shark at the bottom of a ten meter Olympic pool because that was part of the deal. 
So, again, now I knew that this piece of shit didn't work. And by the way, if you looked at it, for more than 10 seconds, you laughed. So it wasn't, it was not a great piece of work. But I was obliged to use this guy and his mechanical shark that came as part of the deal. So again, I devised a way of shooting it so that I could make it work. I had a camera operator who was a great underwater cinematographer and camera operator who came from South Africa and who'd worked with them before. And so we devised a way of when we see the shark, the camera would always be moving. It would go off the shark, it would go onto the shark and off the shark, onto the shark and off. So it wouldn't dwell on the shark, the mechanical shark. And uh, so we devised a way and we made the mechanical shark work. And that was a situation where you mechanical shark would not come to you. You would have to go to the mechanical shark at the bottom of a 10 meter pool. So you'd get two shots in the morning and two shots in the afternoon. It was it was it was tedious, but we got the we got the job done. And I, I love Shark Attack movies. I never go in the water, but I insisted on Shark Attack Two uh, that my that my on uh, Shark Attack One and Two that that my uh, that my actors got scuba uh, tested and passed the exam so they could go underwater and I could really see them going left and right and being afraid and and interacting and and all of that. So. Uh, it's a whole different dance when you're working underwater. Things go a lot slower. I'll tell you what I did learn. As I, I understood, because I had a friend at Technicolor uh, at Universal, and I was happened to be visiting it when, when, when Steven Spielberg was doing Jaws. And he told me, and guess what they were saying about Steven Spielberg when he was doing Jaws? What were they whispering around the Technicolor labs? They're saying, this kid will never work again. The shark doesn't work. It's awful. It's awful. It does. The shark doesn't work. He's four months behind schedule, blah, 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 blah. But they forgot about the editing. They forgot about Verna Fields and the fact that she would only use the best 18 frames or 15 frames or 24 frames uh, to make it work. And, of course, he spent most of the time not showing the shark, which built up the suspense. So I knew that despite being Steven Spielberg, his experience on Jaws, he never went back out on the water again, ever. So I understood you do not go out on the water to do first unit. You send second unit out on the water with doubles in the boats to shoot the boats going left and the boats going right and the fins turning left and the fins turning right and the shark being dragged by the boats. And you do all that as second unit. Then you tie the boat to the dock. And you put the camera on a jib arm that can simulate movement and you do all your dialogue with your actors with the motors running so you can see the bubbles coming out of the back. Then do you have to go back in and ADR all the dialogue or can you record it clean that way? Uh, I got in good dialogue, but finally the producers had said, we don't like hearing the African accents, ADR, ADR everyone. So uh, so I had to do an ADR casting to make sure that their voices fit the bodies and do all of that. And I did have to ADR everyone, even though the performances were fine. That was on Shark Attack 2. On Shark Attack 3, I cast an all-American cast with the great John Barrowman. The great John Barrowman in Shark Attack 2, who had been who'd been in Doctor Who and the, that wonderful spinoff that he did from Doctor Who, where he was the star 
and was in Zero Dark Thirty and just a great actor. But I got him at a time when he was, you know, before he had done all those things. And uh, he was he, he that was another dream guy. He and Jenny McShane were another dream team to work with because they would uh, they, they were just so professional. And as a bonus interviewer, you're going to hear from Cliff himself, Mr. Peter Kwong. I wanted to ask you a real quick background question before I start asking you about uh, Never Too Young to Die. Can you tell me, how did you decide to become an actor? And were you an actor first or a martial artist first? I was studying biological science while I was in college. And during my college days, I noticed in life and society, there was a lot of uh, uh, social unrest and disorder. Uh, in my college days. This was um, back when things were getting quite volatile. So one of the things I noticed in my study of biological science is that um, I took some classes in debate and uh, speech, and I noticed that one book that I read was by Marshall McLuhan, Understanding Media, Uh, and then a chapter within that is The Medium is the Message. And I thought that at that point, that would be a good way to deal with the uh, unrest, the uh, social disorder that we're having similar at this time, and um, address the racial prejudice that my parents had to go through, and and in some situations, uh, even I had to go through, still go through in our film and television industry. Addressing it from a media standpoint uh, it was either going to be communication studies or drama. And I felt that if I visually and emotionally impact people, then they can feel that this face, this persona, is part of our American scene, our American way of life, and that uh, that I am truly trying to set a standard that says, look at this face, this is part of your American lifestyle, as opposed to when they look at you, they'll say, oh, where are you from? Right here where you're from, where do you think? So uh, that's when I switched my majors from biological science to theater arts at that time. It's kind of a major change to go from studying biology into acting, I would think. Right, so now I have all my basic uh, hardcore botany and Chem 1A, Chem 1B, calculus, physics, things like that. And I crammed four years of theater arts into two years. And then I went to uh, American Conservatory Theater and studied acting there. Then I had a choice at that point of graduation to go to New York or to L.A. because there's where the theater was, there's where film and television was. And so I wanted to uh, go into it where I would affect the most people, and that would be TV and film because you speak to a larger audience, even though artistically you are more rewarded in theater. So I came to Los Angeles because it was relatively uh, close to Northern California. At least, you know, during vacations, I can come back home. And so I came down to L.A. and I started my uh, groundwork in local theater, establishing slowly agents and you draw one line in the sand after another, and you know one day's work begins three days' work, and the three day work is in the week, and then you starting in uh, uh, feature films and uh, TV shows, et cetera, et cetera, and still establishing uh, quite a stronghold in theater as well. Now, I know it's not easy for 
actors to get jobs, but it's got to be even tougher for an Asian American actor to get jobs because it feels like when writers are writing things, they tend to write white people because it's white people that are writing these most of the time. What kind of struggles did you go through to get that Asian American face in front of these guys and say, no, I am a valid actor? Well, first of all, let's premise this this conversation um, by uh, breaking down your question in the first place. Uh, you're the one to establish boundaries within an Asian American point of view. When I came to L.A., I'm an actor. I'm not an Asian American actor. I'm not Asian. I'm just an actor. Okay? It's where your limitations and your compartmentalizing comes into play. So and I recognize that reality, but that's not my reality. When I came to L.A. first, you know, there was the options. Now, I don't know. You're not you're Detroit-based, so you're not familiar with the local theater in Los Angeles, but I, I could have gone the Asian-American route and gone to East-West Players, uh, different uh, support groups in terms of Asian-American theater. I chose not to. I went straight into American Conservatory Theater, and coincidentally, it was the first year that uh, we developed the Asian-American Workshop, which eventually evolved into the Asian-American Theater in San Francisco, a branch from the um, uh, genesis from American Conservatory Theater. And I came down to L.A. and uh, just went straight into theater. I did not necessarily go through uh, the Asian route, even though um, there were a lot of uh, theaters that I, a couple of projects that I took on. I said, no, this is not my cup of tea. I think I would rather establish myself as an actor as opposed to the support group of an Asian American theater. Uh, that being said, my, my roles became from what what they were. Yes, yes. Um, being the odds of being an actor, being successful an actor are slim. Uh, being an Asian American actor and those roles are slimmer. But I figured, hey, we've got a one in a million chance of being successful as an actor. What's the difference between one in a million and one in two million, or with three million? So it's. It's hard either way. So that, you do not let obstacles stand in your way. You just go for it. Yeah, whether or not the, 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 the bar is high or low, it doesn't matter. It just, you just keep on, it's like, um, you know what, chip, chip away at the mountain. I could ask you about this for so long, but I know that we're under a time constraint today. So I did want to kind of definitely fast forward a whole bunch here. And, I know that you worked with Stephen Paul on Slapstick of Another Kind, and then he obviously had a, a big involvement with Never Too Young to Die. Can you tell me about your work on Slapstick of Another Kind? Was that your first time working with him? Well, to be honest with you, I, I was not familiar that uh, Stephen Paul was involved with Slapstick of Another Kind. My Yeah, so I, I now is, was he producing that? Uh, well, he's listed as the director. Really? Okay, well, that was... I, like I said, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't, uh, that, I think my involvement with, um, uh, slapstick of another kind was, I think maybe just a one or three day job. And that's when I worked with, um, my memories of that was working with Madeline Kahn and Jerry Lewis. That must have been something to work with those two. Oh yeah, it's an amazing icon. And then at the same time, I was working with, uh, Pat Morita. Uh, I was the soldier, and he was the uh, general in our flying fortune cookie, dealing with the aliens, of course, of uh, Madeline Kahn and and Jerry Lewis. 
And then we did talk a little bit before this about how busy you must have been in 1985 going into 1986, because Never Too Young to Die was one of three major roles for you that came out in 86, between that, The Golden Child, and then uh, Big Trouble in Little China. What are your memories of working on Never Too Young to Die? My memories of working for Never Too Young to Die, I had a decision to make right at the onset, because uh, I had just been cast in the, the supporting role, uh, being quote-unquote uh, John Stamos's sidekick, and uh, we were like just beginning to set that into play, and before we even shot, I got another phone call from casting with Karate Kid 2 to be shot in in Hawaii, and one was the best uh, the best sidekick, you know, and working with Vanity and and Gene Simmons and getting a uh, a title role in that one versus uh, a small uh, featured role in Karate Kid Two. Of course, the fame would have been much better with Karate Kid Two, but uh, so I had to make a decision, and so I chose uh, Never Be Young to Die over Karate Kid Two. There lies in uh, what do you call after marketing effects and things like that. So I could have gone to a lot more conventions with Karate Kid Do than than Never Too Young to Die. Although, although with Never Too Young to Die, I think it was last year or a year before, I was invited to a special screening of one of the worst films out there, Horrible Movie Nights or something like that. They asked me to be a VIP guest. And it was quite hilarious because they said, "No, no, no, we're we're not going to boo you." But during the movie, they are they are asked to uh, make outward comments, and the people who make the worst comments or the funniest comments during the show gets a prize. And of course, uh, after the show or prior to the show starting, I had an introduction and and gave them kind of secrets and fun things, information that they can look forward to the the show of. Uh, never too young to die, and so uh, as as I'm doing right now, so that's that's what I'll do here. Tell you all the little fun things that I got to do with uh, John Stamos, Gene Simmons, Vanity, and uh, you know, working with my uh, my super weapons that I was able to create and invent as my character. Yeah, I kind of describe you as being the film's Q. You know, the guy that comes up with all the cool inventions. Exactly. And, but then at the same time, not only just behind the scene, I was able to participate and get out there with my unique, uh, colorful outfits that, uh, you know, that, that I wore. Suspenders was my trademark. Yeah. And so, uh, even then we had our, our slide access because, uh, you know, I, 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 I think at one point the, uh, they had watered down the, uh, the, the effects to, and uh, the motorcycles went sliding sideways and, I had a slight accident on the set, but no, no major injuries, just, uh, just a twisted ankle because I was wearing those motorcycle boots. Uh, but anyway, that was, that was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I, I thought that, um, my time with, uh, Gene Simmons, he was, he was a hoot. Uh, you know, I think that, uh, Shannon Tweed made her way onto the set several times. And I don't know if you, well, I guess the reality of the show nowadays, he, he married her and had kids and things like that. So, uh, but at the time, I think they were uh, back in '86. I don't know if they were married or just dating. I wasn't too much into Kiss at that time. As a matter of fact, the odd thing is that something a little trivia. This was my second time working with Gene Simmons. 
I did a television thing called Kiss and the Phantom, where they were walking through an amusement park. They did a TV show. We, we shot at Magic Mountain in Los Angeles area. And I was uh, an expert in robotic movement and robotic dance. So they dressed me up as a character in that movie as a robot, uh, dressed up as a samurai. And I was wielding a sword and moving in robotic movements uh, in that movie. The first time I encountered Gene Simmons and the second time was in Never Too Young to Die, where he plays a, plays a hermaphrodite in this show, which was quite hard on the eyes. What was it like working with John Stamos? John Stamos was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, we, 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 were, we got along uh, very nicely. Uh, he was very young at the time, so, you know, I think that, uh, and I think his mother, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm confusing too. That was, I worked with another young actor as well, uh, in another show called, um, it was a skateboarding one with Christian Slater. Oh, Gleaming the Cube. Gleaming the Cube. Thank you. See, you've got better memory than I do. Uh, so yeah, I, I so I remember the situations were, were similar in that, you know, we had the, sidekick situation as opposed to that that situation i was the enemy uh and 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 in never too young to die i was the sidekick and the best friend and of course you know the backstory is that that john stamos father unbeknownst to him was a spy like uh, james bond and then of course the character that played his father was one of uh was a james bond in actual into actuality so I'm trying to remember the actor's name who played John Stamos's father. Uh, George Lazenby. Thank you. And, and he played uh, James Bond in one of the James Bond movies. So did you and, and Stamos get along pretty well? We, uh, most of my scenes were with him, uh, you know, whether it's uh, at the school that we went to or then we got then he got involved with Danya, uh, uh, Danja and, and uh, played by Vanity. And I, those, those scenes, the nightclub scenes and motorcycle scenes, those, I wasn't part of that initial one. But again, I came up with all the, the tricks of the trade, the, the chewing gum with the secret stuff in it, and then the, the master blaster, whatever that the weapon that was called, that we finally used to uh, rescue Danja at the, at the very end. What was Vanity like on set? Vanity, uh, unfortunately for me, the, 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 this little sex scene that they had, I, it was a closed set. So I was in my trailer and, but, uh, but she, she was, you know, uh, of course, you know, later on and, and God rest her soul, she's, she's now passed on, which was a, you know, sad, sad situation. But I think, um, afterward, um, I think she got into, did she, I'm trying to recall, did she become, uh, a minister? I believe so. Yes. At that time, I, I, I recall that she was still, I don't, I don't, I think that her, her days with Prince was over and she was well on to her own uh, singing career at that point. So she was quite famous, but she was very nice to me on set and uh, very down to earth. So there was, I didn't, I didn't feel that she caught an attitude at all. She was just very nice. Unfortunately, I have no scandalous stories to tell you. I recall a friend of mine said, Oh Peter, come on! You got to come up with a better story than that. I mean, I've I've, I've heard the the truth, and then I've heard some lies. You know, I going and and quite frankly, the truth is very boring. Did you get to do any stunt work on that film? 
Not really, because you know, even though I'm I've, I'm uh, a martial artist, studied uh, many years in Northern Shaolin, and now teach Tai Chi. Um, that particular role was just uh, you know more of a nerd than a martial artist. So the closest thing that I came to doing any martial arts is as I creeped into the the house in in my uh, motorcycle outfit, I might have had a slight martial arts stance, but that's the closest thing you're going to get to any martial arts. Otherwise, you know, it's just running around and having, a, you know, creating havoc uh, in two Gene Simmons and as much as I could from my uh, position. I, I, I wasn't brought in as a martial artist on that particular show. You talked about that bad movie night where people were just yelling out insults at the film. How does that make you feel as an actor watching this film that you were in being lampooned like that? Oh, I didn't take it personally because, you know, it, it is what it is. You know, we do do our work. Sometimes we're blessed to be uh, uh, critically acclaimed. And, other t- and the, the other thing, I mean, that's the difference between being a biological scientist and an actor. You know, everything uh, with biology is everything is very uh, clean cut. You know, that you, the knowledge is right there. You either got the facts right or the facts are wrong. There's no in-between. There's no opinion about uh, no general hypothesis sometimes in, in terms of, uh, you know, is, is the amoeba a certain way or not? It's like, but, but in theater, you have the subjection of saying, oh, that's good acting or bad acting. Uh, I've had the pleasure of working an amazing play where I'm, you know, 95% on the play, in the play, on stage for two and a half hours. And that was playing the role of Dr. Hangis Nor uh, in the Actors Theater of Louisville in Kentucky at the Humana Festival. That would, I would say, would be one of the most artistic, rewarding times of my life. The most fun I've ever had on set was probably in Big Trouble in Little China. And, uh, and then finally, with uh, Never Too Young to Die, that was a lot of fun. But at the same time, it was, you know, I, I re- recognize the fact that I'm not the lead, so I tried my best to be uh, the supporting role. And, and even as a supporting character, you want to know your position because you, you have to play to that character, which is being supportive, never out act the the lead character then that that that's a rule of thumb in in television episodics saying don't don't be bigger than the star otherwise you're expendable they're not yeah i just saw you on uh, lethal weapon recently uh, i'm curious what other things are you working on these days well currently i'm i'm back into uh the acting classes and uh i'm working on a couple of personal projects right now so can't uh, can't reveal too much at this time, but um, picked up a New York agent, and uh, so I'm working on on the theatrical career as well. Uh, right now, it's it's very busy with uh, Oscar season, and uh, coming as soon as Oscars are over, then comes the Emmys. I'm both in Motion Picture Academy as well as the Academy, of the Television Television Academy as well. So I vote in the Emmys and the Oscars. And as, as you can imagine, with, with uh, cable and all the different uh, shows, Netflix, etc., there, there's no lack of content out there. Just as a casual viewer, I can't keep up with shows. I can't imagine having to watch those for my job. Exactly. So, 
so it keeps me busy and and uh and of course uh I really in, enjoy the opportunity to not only see these films take me into alter, alternate realities but uh they treat you nice as well you know in, in these for your consideration events so they say okay well we want your vote so uh please come to a lunch come to uh you know a, a screening and you get to uh, do a Q&A with with our our actors, our producers, our directors, and uh, get more informed about the business. Mr. Kwong, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a real pleasure talking with you. To your viewer audience, I hope that you enjoy Never Too Young to Die. And KISS rock star Gene Simmons is back in makeup and wearing bizarre clothes, this time for a movie role. This is Gene Simmons of the rock group KISS in 1982. This is Gene Simmons with KISS after the band cleaned up its act, so to speak, and lost the makeup. Now Simmons is back in makeup of a different sort for his role in the upcoming spy film Never Too Young to Die. Simmons is playing entertainer Velvet Von Ragnar, a character who needs a bit of explanation. The character I play is supposed to be this sort of uh, very bad person, but has mixed sexual sort of ideas in his mind. It is a hermaphrodite, half man, half woman. And uh, I was born this way. So the Lord's been good to me, don't you think? While Simmons plays the villain in the film, John Stamos and Vanity team up to solve a murder. I thought my father's death was an accident. I thought you said you didn't care about that. Don't throw Stephen out there like that and leave me hanging. Come on. Something I've always dreamed of being a spy is more like the James Bond woman. I hope that that's what it comes across as. I think I'm a little bit meaner. I don't know. <laughs> Stamos, who is best known for a long-running role on General Hospital, makes his feature film debut in Never Too Young to Die. It's been great. I, I just have more time to, to really get into my character, I think. And I sometimes I, I can tend to slough off, you know, uh, on TV, just kind of whiz through it. And I'm here, I'm really, I have the time to concentrate and, and I really uh, prepare and work up for my scenes, you know, before. Autograph. Billy with love Phil. It's interesting to walk around in this stuff. You walk differently because I've got these high stiletto heels. See over there? And it comes all the way up. <clears throat> Along the way there are various things that are sort of interesting. It's a combination of pleasures. All right, we are back, and we were talking about Never Too Young to Die. So I really like that interview with Kill Batman. He he just doesn't give it. Yeah, he let him have it, man. <laughs> like, I listened to it way back when you recorded it, and then I listened to it again, and I, I completely forgotten probably the second half of that interview where, you know, he just he, he opens up on, on uh, Stephen Paul, you know, every couple of minutes, and he doesn't hold back about vanity or anybody else. The moment that I almost plussed was when he was like, oh, I can probably get you Gene oh Simmons. Oh, my God. I was I like, know. what? I, you can probably hear my heart drop at that moment. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, my God. That would be awesome. <laughs> I was like, there's no fucking way, but this would be amazing. You imagine the possibilities. Oh, and he, and I, I remember it's been years <laughs> since I've read it. In one of Gene's, I think he's done more than one book, but his main oh. bio 
he he wrote about doing this film and he seemed to have a lot of fun with it and my memory is so foggy on it but my overall memory is that he's he spoke pretty favorably about his experience making it and i think just really obvious i mean you can watch the film and see this and not be shocked by the fact that he totally relished getting to play this role which which good for him i mean the rock world can be very very macho and very you know very straight especially like hard rock and you know i say that as somebody who's you know three-fourths like a metalhead but uh, <laughs> but for him to just completely throw himself in that role, I thought I thought was great, and he's he's fantastic. I mean, just the shot of him as Velvet driving a semi truck—that's my favorite pic- shot of the whole movie. <laughs> that should have been the poster art. That should have been the poster <laughs> art because it's just such a great surreal. It's almost surrealist that if it just yeah, you know, Gene Simmons a drag driving a semi. Do you know how many times I've tried to get Stephen Paul for an interview? Because I'm I'm still working on that book about Elliot Gould films from the the 70s, and I want to end it right around the time of Falling in Love Again and The Devil and Max Devlin. And Stephen Paul wrote and directed Falling in Love Again, and it's just like, you would think this guy would be a get, you know, an easy get for me. But no, yeah. And then in recent years, he's gone on to do like all these crazy things. Like uh, he's actually one of the producers of the Ghost in the Shell movie that's coming out. It's like what? <laughs> How did that happen? He's involved with the Marvel universe too. He's one of the producers of the Ghost Rider movies. It's like, how does this happen? Well, I I feel like recently his his real big you know his cash cow has been the, the Baby Geniuses series though. <laughs> Because he his name is just up top on every single one of those, and I think did did he write on those too? I, I feel like he did. I think he did. Yeah, if not like actual screenplay, I think he gets story credit. But yeah, he's he's up there with all those things. He's all in on baby geniuses. I mean, somebody has to be. And you you have to wonder how those keep getting made, and it keeps just getting made because Stephen Paul is just fearless apparently well the last one was two years ago so we're due for another one because uh baby geniuses and the space baby was a 2015 so pretty soon we'll get another yeah and oh it's, my- it's just it's so weird looking at that the whole filmography there because there's so many movies you've either never heard of or you know are bad and then you know there's something like doomsday from 2008 which i loved and i don't know how he got his name just randomly on that movie there is a a baby geniuses movie two years ago in space yes the space baby so the space baby might have come down you know <laughs> oh my which means that the next one is going to space right well yeah the one before that was baby geniuses and the treasure of Egypt. <laughs> oh my god what oh is- yeah that's the one that steals the indiana jones font right <laughs> yeah and he was uh the writer director of slapstick of another kind which is based on a Kurt Vonnegut's story, I believe, and that's the one with uh, Madeline Kahn and um, Marty Feldman and uh, uh, um, and Jerry Lewis in that. So, yeah, that that is not a good movie by any stretch of the imagination. Well, I'm just going to go out a limb and say Space Babies probably isn't good. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen it. I don't want to. I don't like judging films I haven't seen. But uh, oh my god, what is wrong with society? Like, why are people giving money to this? Why? Anybody listening to this, don't give your money to this. Why? Why would you? You know, in this economy of all the world of cinema, you're like space baby. That's child abuse. Don't show that I mean- to you. <laughs> 
I mean, he definitely just has a pile of money somewhere and we don't know how he got. And I mean, and you heard Gil Bettman talk about how he had that, you know, that dream of making the teenage James Bond. And then, you know, a few years later, he ended up also producing the Corey Haim movie, The Double O Kid, which did about as well. (laughs) I feel like some of this is active hate or something. He might have some deep rooted, dark... issues with society and the viewing public to to be connected to some of these films i mean (laughs) when i was a kid i always wanted to be james bond and they wouldn't let me so here's double o kid universe you're welcome (laughs) i can't believe space baby i'm sorry i don't mean to keep going back to it i just and and aren't the baby geniuses kind of like spies at some point too I think like the so, spies yeah, just keep like getting younger and younger. The, uh, <laughs> the mystery of the crown jewels was one before that. And I know that they were, you know, very uh, international intrigue in that one. Yes. I can't wait for, uh, the, the, for them just to go all the way back to like, you know, secret super spies were fetuses. And <laughs> and then, you know, if one of them dies in Indiana, they'd have to give him a funeral. Oh, <laughs> goodness. Oh, people. I, this is this is why we need uh, we need we need a uh, cultural revolution. People don't be burying abortive fetuses, and please don't be supporting the super baby space genius bullshit show. Don't do it. Don't give your money to it. It's it's just for the best. Go buy a Russ Meyer movie, <laughs> and then go buy Never Too Young to Die when it's on Blu-ray in in, uh, in April. That's another thing I kind of take credit for because years ago there was there was just this one point where Shout Factory was saying, "Hey, are there any movies you want?" to see Shout Factory release and I said well I've got one for you and I, I left a pretty detailed you know message about what the movie was and they said we've never heard of that before <laughs> and then fast forward to about four years later and what do you know they must have listened brilliant I can't I'm excited that I, I love that actually on a more positive I love that we live in an age where like this film is getting a nice blu-ray release that's awesome I mean I can't get a copy of uh of possession to save my life, but at least I can get Never Too Young to Die on Blu-ray. I know it's so random. It's so random sometimes. Like what's what what is out there and what's not. But now that'll be good. April will be a good month. Shout is just put a whole slate of stuff together over this that that few months though, because they've got uh, Serial Mom coming out the month after that, and Streets of Fire, and just all this stuff. So they need to take it easy because I'm only one man. I hope they put out Serial Mom right after Labor Day. The White Shoes edition. Oh, God. You see your Kathleen Turner going, ooh-wee. No, that'll, that'll be great. And um, so I have a question for you guys. So what if you got to do like a double bill and the first feature is Never Too Young to Die, what would you think would be like the best follow-up for the double feature? Well, I already kind of threw out Dragnet and Police Academy 2, but I don't know. <laughs> but what will we, how will we know what happened in Police Academy 1? <laughs> there were so many unanswered questions that they had to do. You're just going to drop me into the middle of the sequel? Come on, Mike. <laughs> there are good reasons why there's eight of those films, guys. Come on. It's a compelling story. I was trying to think, because this film... It has so many elements that a lot of films, like some of which we've referenced tonight, it has like some of those same elements. But yet there's something so utterly bizarro about this film that makes it stand out. And I was trying to think of like, I was trying to think of like, what would be like a really great pairing with this film? Because it's it's just so uh, in its own sort of world. Because you could watch this with something like Rotor, but it's like... The quality of this film, and it's strange for me to say this, but the quality of Never Too Young to Die is heads and shoulders above so many other movies that were being made around this time. And definitely was not made 
for the video market. I mean, that's where it found its home, of course, but at times it feels like it's a real movie and it's, it's tough to reconcile that, 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 that this was a theatrical release because I could imagine paying money and seeing this at a theater. I wish that I had. I almost did once. And uh, a friend of mine decided, oh, well, we can just leave to Austin an hour late. So <laughs> that, oh. I, I'll always hold that grudge. That, I think that was the first time the Alamo ever showed Never Too Young to Die. And I said, guys, get in the car. We're going. We're going to go watch this movie. You will not believe what this is. And we got there and the movie was half an hour into it and they wouldn't let us in. And oh. so we we, uh, we stopped at IHOP and uh, drove back home. So hopefully, hopefully with this this resurgence, maybe I'll get that chance again. Oh, knocking on wood. That's so sad. I'm sorry, Josh. Yeah. Oh, I know. I'll 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 live it up someday. It'll happen. <laughs> it, it, it's it's such a weird movie because thematically, like, it's hard to tell what the movie really thinks it's about. And, you know, the, the producer and the director were definitely at odds about the movie. But as an 80s action movie, it's really well made. There's a lot of fun stunts in there. There's a lot of good explosions. The sh- you know, the shoot up stuff is pretty, uh, pretty enjoyable, pretty competently made. So it, it did fit in with that period more than stuff like Rotor. The action was kind of a joke in, uh, in some of those the more well-known bad action movies of the time. <laughs> you know, actually, one film that I think would be, and, and this, you guys might think this is from Mars, but I think would actually be a great double bill with this as the second feature would be Angel 2. Because Angel 2 is like is hilarious and it's ridiculous and it's got a great cast. I don't yeah, know. I, I never got around to seeing any of the Angel movies. I always saw them on the shelf and I never got to see them. Oh, is An- yeah. Angel Two is the one where she's undercover, right? Yes, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, 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 <laughs> I don't know. There's too many Angel movies. <laughs> I never saw the third one, but no, the second one's great because you get, you have Susan Tyrell who was in the first one oh, making it. Susan Tyrell's uh, amazing. Oh God, and she plays a lesbian bartender, and she ends up taking care of. She ends up babysitting. And the second one, <laughs> she's babe, it's just real shitty. It's, um, I mean, that alone, I'm like, I'm there. Got Susan Tyrell's lesbian bartender babysitting. Yes. Yes, please. It sounds like that Paul Morrissey film that she was in where she throws the baby out the window. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Andy Warhol's bad. I think, was that directed actually by uh, Jed Johnson? Probably, yeah. But Paul, I think I, uh, I'm a Warhol nerd. I must apologize. But, um, but yeah, no, Angel 2, I, I do recommend it. It's completely, the first one has a sort of, I mean, it's an exploitation film, but it has actually, you, you feel bad for Angel because she's just a kid. And, you know, it has sort of a, a more seriousness. Angel 2, they just said, fuck it. And <laughs> it just went full oculusness. There's some hilarious action in it. Um, I recommend it. I recommend Angel 2. Oh, yeah, Angel 2. Okay, Angel 2 is Avenging Angel. That's where I got thrown off. They 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 dropped the the numbers immediately, <laughs> and then they numbered the third one. That's what they pulled. They were right there on the forefront of that. Yeah, kind of like uh, Die Hard uh, with a Vengeance. If only they'd had Susan Tyrell in those movies. They should have had Susan Tyrell in every movie. God, she was yeah. such a joy. Just makes everything better. That woman. All right, let's take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Working woman and modern wrestler. You got it. Frankie Stone's got it all. 
a fulfilling job. Myron's group is still waiting on the promo copy. Geraldi likes the slogan, but he wants to delete the word small. He thinks it's a turnoff. An understanding mother. You could have married the most eligible bachelor in all of Miami if you played your cards right. A good friend. Frankie, I always thought Steve was about the best you were gonna do. She had only one problem. Finding the right guy. Miss Stone, the Ulysses Android is an amazing piece of equipment. I'm not used to promoting hardware, Doctor. I promote people. But she was about to take a step in the right direction. My God, he looks like you. What did you think he'd look like? An erector set? Making Mr. Right. He was designed for space. Guess that means you don't cook. Huh? But his heart was set on Earth. I think you're the most attractive woman I know. I'm the only woman you know. What was that? A kiss. I love you, Jeff. What is that woman teaching you? <laughs> We were making love and it was the most beautiful thing I've ever felt in my entire life. Some minor activity occurs in the medulla and, and wham, they think they're in love. You just made it with my android. Ulysses, you have a great future in space. You'll go down in the history books. You're to be envied. I don't want to be envied. I want to be loved. From the director of Desperately Seeking Susan, Making Mr. Right. That's right, we'll be back next week talking about Making Mr. Right with Beth Accomando and Miguel Rodriguez, who will be joining me once again. But this week, our co-hosts were Heather and Josh. So, Heather, what have you been up to lately? Well, um, I've been working with John Skip on the first volume of our Bizarro Film Encyclopedia, which, uh, barring barring any villainy from Gene Simmons and Bad Drag, we should have finished and ready for the public later this year. Um, also, the latest installment of my music column, Sonic Attack, has gone live at Diabolique, and uh, this time I delve into the career of one of the biggest voices in rock and roll, Mr. Graham Bonnet, who was in Rainbow and Alcatraz and it's a great solo artist too and um, you can read that over at diabolicmagazine.com and josh how about you when you're not poisoning flint's water supply what are you uh well i'm uh i'm kind of just disappearing in the middle of a firefight like uh like robert england at the end of this movie who who uh <laughs> like we didn't touch on that either he just he's just there and then he just kind of walks away as the other guys get shot that's pretty appropriate for what i'm doing because i don't really do much of anything right now i uh i sort of had a you know podcast that I did from time to time with a friend called Mentertainment Weekly because I thought it was a funny pun. But now in the world, in a world where terms like alt right exist, I realize people are going to take that title too seriously. Uh, so don't go listen to it; it's not good. Uh, but we're going to try to completely revamp everything, come out with something in the next couple of months, and whenever I figure out what that is, I will share it with the world. Uh, as it is, I've made a few guest appearances uh, not too far back. I was on an episode of Eric, the uh, Doug Tilly show, Eric Roberts is the fucking man, which is a lot of fun. And I recommend that over uh, anything I've made myself. I've also been on Badasses boobs and body counts a few times and a couple other things here and there. But uh, other than that, uh, I just usually make bad jokes on Twitter uh, at Bracky Wacky, which is B-R-A-K-Y-W-A-K-I. And I'm always goofing around on all these podcasts, Facebook groups and stuff like that. But uh, hopefully in the coming months, I'll actually get productive and do something again. Well, very cool. When you do, we'll be sure to share it over at the Projection Booth website, which is projection-booth.com. So thank you guys for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure talking about Never Too Young to Die with you both. And it was uh, a lot of fun. I hope 
people have as much fun listening to our discussion as we had recording it. So uh, while you're over at projection-booth.com, you can also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show. You can go over to Patreon and give a donation if you want, because every rating, every review, and every donation help the Projection Booth and Velvet Von Ragnar take over the world.
you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.